Digital Gonzo, episode 127, dated Thursday the 11th of April 2013, Bioshock. We're going to start with a piece called An Ocean on His Shoulders by Gary Scheiman. This is playing on the aeroplane at the beginning, but is obscured and cut off. The refrain is repeated several times throughout the game, but listening to the entire piece and thinking about the vast tragic majesty of rapture now broken on the ocean floor it's hard not to think of all the positive energy and hope that went into the place before it was torn apart by the worst aspects of mankind This is the first of four shows dedicated to the Bioshock series. Tonight we'll be covering the 2007 original. Next week it will be Bioshock 2 and a bonus DLC episode on Minerva's Den. Finally, we will cover Bioshock Infinite. There will only be spoilers on the specific game we're covering each episode. As a lot has already been said about these games, I am keeping these podcasts as concentrated as possible with a deeper focus on plot, narrative, and character development over gameplay. With me tonight are Gary Blower and James Batchelor of Gameburst. Hello. Hello. And on his first podcasting outing, Mark Ord of Gonzo Planet. Hello. And if you go to Gonzo Planet and look under the new Bioshock section, you will find Mark's first instalment of Gaming Topsy, in which he rigorously covers this game. Now, I'm going to do something unusual for the podcast here. For the first part, the first act, I'm going to present you with an edited audio version of Mark's investigation, simply because it is so thorough and insightful that it says a lot of what we want to say here tonight anyway, and rather than repeat ourselves or forcing you guys to all go and see a video we're referring back to, it makes sense to have it here and now available to all. 
So for those who haven't seen it but would like to, go to Gonzo Planet's new Bioshock section and watch it. For those who have seen it but would like a refresher, and for those who haven't and would rather simply listen to what he has to say here and now, enjoy the next 52 minutes. And for those who have seen it and don't need to hear it again, jump to the following timestamp on this podcast for the extended discussion. 56 minutes. Either way, all four of us will be back after Mark's solo exploration to pick over the finer points from a masterpiece of this gaming generation. They told me, Son, you're special. You were born to do great things. You know what? They were right. So here we are at the start of the game, and what a great opener. I love the attention to detail throughout, like being able to smoke a cigarette in an aeroplane was something I'd completely forgot you could do in the 1960s. And you have this late 50s raffia handbag with pearls spilling out, returning to the ocean. I remember playing this for the first time and thinking it was still a cutscene. The reflection effects of the fire in the water was just so good that it took me a minute to realise it could actually move. It initially struck me as odd that I was the only survivor in this air crash. However, in hindsight, it's eventually explained why. I suppose it directs the narrative somewhat. Levine doesn't have to dilute an already complex story with the excess baggage of having to interact with any other survivors in some way. And then we have this lighthouse in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Of course, it's more than just a lighthouse. It's Alice's rabbit hole, or C.S. Lewis's wardrobe. A doorway to a world so unlike anything above the sea. The first thing that strikes us is the sculpture of Andrew Ryan's face domineering over the player with his objectivist slogan of No gods or kings, only man. To build a city at the bottom of the sea, insanity. But where else could we be free from the clutching hand of the parasites? Where else could we build an economy that they would not try to control? A society that they would not try to destroy? It was not impossible to build rapture at the bottom of the sea. It was impossible to build it anywhere else. The city of Rapture is, is was built with by Andrew Ryan and his team with... A, a real strong philosophical bent, and that bent was um, that people, you know, as he says, 
is a man not entitled to the sweat of his own brow. And he was, you know, he lived in a time in America where he came, first of all, he was born in the Soviet Union and during the revolution, around the time of the revolution or before the revolution. And he saw what happened with the revolution and he was an anti-communist and he came to America. He felt that if he was a great man, he should be entitled to the fruit of his own labor. He didn't want the government or the church or, you know, anybody like anybody else telling him what was or wasn't his. Which I think, you know, is, is to an American is a very sort of understandable concept. Um, and he felt so strongly about this that he felt he couldn't stay in America, especially with the you know coming threat of nuclear war, with the new nuclear weapons after World War II. And he wanted to take the you know what he considered the best and the brightest people to a place where they could practice their, their craft, whatever their craft was: artist, you know, scientist, um, um, industrialist, and do it without another person's hand in their pocket. And um, that's why he created Rapture. So we finally get to leave the bathosphere, picking up a shortwave radio on the way, and we come into contact with a guy called Atlas, who ends up being our guide through the city. I love the protest placards strewn about. It immediately tells the player that all is not well in the city under the sea. Now, when I first saw this advert, I was reminded of that famous World War One propaganda poster where a little girl sits on her father's knee and asks, Daddy, what did you do during the Great War? Both of these posters are used to manipulate the fathers through the guilt of not disappointing their child. It's a form of peer pressure of them to conform with the rest of the citizens. However, in this case, it's to use the new wonders of these plasmid superpowers instead of joining an army. The theme of parenthood is actually used strongly within this game. Now, this is a lovely section. It's simply there to show off the water effects. Irrational Games hired people specifically for this, and they did a phenomenal job. It's completely scripted, of course. I could stand at the end of that tunnel and I just wouldn't drown, but it gives a nice sense of urgency and hurries the player along to the next section. Now, one of the most standout features that you notice when you step into Rapture is the truly stunning Art Deco design that pervades throughout the game. It was such a unique and refreshing setting, a real change from the gamut of brown-hued sci-fi or military shooters. Sadly, a situation that still hasn't changed. Not only is the design in the large-scale architecture, it's in the smaller details too. It's in the posters, the neon signs, the Bakerlite security cameras, doors, furniture. It's this consistency throughout that makes Rapture a really special and believable environment to be in. The art team really do have to be congratulated on the beautiful art assets that they created. Not only did they build this stunning backdrop, they proceeded to destroy it. Slowly we witness the decay that sets in. The effects of the Civil War has destroyed much of the city, and the Atlantic Ocean is slowly reclaiming Rapture. So we finally get our first real weapon in the game, and the developers give it to us in the most creepy way possible by showing us how far gone these splicers really are, with the unfortunate lady in the pram. Our bodies, our minds, we couldn't handle it. 
gangs butchering one another, babies strangled in cribs. The whole city went to hell. As we enter the Kashmir restaurant, we can see evidence of a ball. And through the use of the audio diaries, we learn that this was the starting point of the Civil War. I love this setting. We've got the ink spots playing in the gramophone, the party steamers and hats strewn about downstairs, and that beautiful poster advertising the masquerade ball of 1959. I saw one of these smugglers having a game of catching on the docks today. And this surprised me because his hands were crippled during the war. He was unloading the barge the other day when he was beaten from the sea slug. He woke up the next morning and he found he could move his fingers for the first time in years. I asked him if he still had that sea slug. As luck would have it. <laughs> he did. This little sea slug has come along and glued together all the crazy ideas I've had since the war. It doesn't just heal damaged cells, it resurrects them. I can bend the double helix. Black can be reborn white, tall, short, weak, strong. But the slugs alone are not enough. I'll need money. And one other thing. Originally we had the uh, the whole ecology system and the gatherers were actually not girls, they were these slugs. These you know, little slugs that flew around, and if you got near them, they'd roll up and start clicking, and the, that's when the protector would come in and attack you. And, you know, we had the full animation for those. Those guys were working fine, and, uh, you know, you step back, and it's like nobody's... We want to build this relationship between the protectors and the gatherers. And nobody cares about a slug. It wasn't really much of a choice to, to whether or not you wanted to harvest them or not. It was just like... That's an ugly sea slug. I want to kill that little. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was like you. You just wanted to stomp on them. Yeah. They were. They were really nasty, and they just looked like things you squished. Um, but it took us. It took us like a long time to find a gatherer that we liked. Yeah. Like we went through. We we started getting concepts from from <laughs> in. Everyone internally was working on it, and we even had outsourcing concept artists like throwing their ideas into the mix. You gotta dig some of those up. We the, were the little squirrely. Yeah, guy, there was this little. Like, there was one that was like this little like gerbil man. <laughs> there were crabs. There were you know going with the whole underwater theme. There was a consideration there might be monkeys at one point, which that idea didn't last long. I'll admit it. My bad idea was a do dog whose front legs could move but its back legs were bound in a wheelchair going around eating stuff yeah that's a bad idea there's like this little hunchback oompa loompa type of guy and and eventually we started seeing that the more humanoid we got the better it felt ultimately it came down to just you don't have sympathy for any of those characters or you know you don't want to interact with them and then rob waters our, our in-house concept guy who worked on on all of our stuff in recent years drew this incredibly creepy looking little girl and that was like this is the way we've got to go it's it's incredibly creepy and it can be expressive and one of the biggest problems with the slug back in the time was he had no appendages, he had no face, he had no eyes, like, you, you had just... had no lower jaw, even. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't even, you had no idea what this thing was trying to communicate to you as a gamer. Having her evolve from an insect into, you know, another tentacle monster, all the way to this idea that it's, it's 
it's these little girls. Um, I think it's just exciting because you're crossing a line there. I don't think people expect and uh, having Ken come up with ideas like that and uh, these these challenging ideas you have to illustrate and sell to an audience and you know make it edgy without going over the line. I think that that was just rewarding, challenging. Hopefully, we've done a good job with that. Now, the story and environment of Bioshock had evolved wildly since its initial concept. Originally, it was about a deprogrammer that had to rescue a politician's daughter from a cult. It was set on a desert island, and within that island was an old World War II Nazi bunker filled with wild genetic experiments. However, Levine was reading the works of Ayn Rand, and this influenced him into writing the final story of Bioshock, with its central theme of objectivism. What gave you the idea to create Rapture, and why the name Rapture? Well, the name Rapture is probably you know, Andrew Ryan's little joke. Andrew Ryan is, um, you know, it has some basis of, of, of characters in history, like um, Howard Hughes and wealthy industrials, and Ayn Rand, who is a, a philosopher um, and a noted atheist, and. Um, Rapture in, in religion is, is a notion of, of where people will, you know, what happens when the end times come and every, all the, the chosen, you know, the, all the, you know, the, re, the religious chosen are taken up to heaven and everybody else is left behind. And this is sort of his little joke that all of his chosen people are taken away from earth and brought to rapture and everybody else is left behind. All the best people, best and the brightest are brought to rapture. Um, and so it's sort of an ironic name for him. Um, and so that's where, that's where he came up with the name, in my, in my view. A little history lesson here. Ayn Rand was a philosopher and novelist, with her most notable works of fiction being The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. She created the concept of rational and ethical egoism. Now, Ayn Rand was the type of person that would use a thousand words to describe something that only really needed fifty. But here's a good summary of how she describes objectivism. The basic principle of objectivism is that man must be guided exclusively by reason. Reason is the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by his senses. That's a formal definition. That reason is man's only tool of knowledge, his only guide to action, and his only guide to the choice of values. As a consequence of that, man's proper ethics or morality is a morality of rational self-interest which means that every man has a right to exist for his own sake and he must not sacrifice himself to others or sacrifice others to himself. That the achievement of his own rational happiness is the highest moral purpose of his life. As a consequence of that, the only system, the only political system which expresses this morality is the system of laissez-faire capitalism, by which I mean full, unregulated, uncontrolled. Now I've read The Fountainhead and I'm familiar with Rand's work and well, this clip sums up my personal feelings on the subject. Ooh, The Fountainhead! Mom, isn't that book the Bible of right-wing losers? Yeah, but the guy on the book jacket is one sexy slice of beefcake. Grrr. Hi, hi, I know it's a cheap shot, but I am a lefty, so <laughs> there you go. So, Levine takes Ayn Rand's objectivist theory and dials it up to 11. 
It goes to such an extreme level that this one's wonderful city has turned into a hellish dystopian society. The well, as soon as we came up with the the idea of utopia, um, I, I was always a sucker for utopia for you failed utopia stories. I mean, are there any real utopia stories? They're always a failed utopia. I mean, when I was a kid, I grew up reading you know Brave New World in 1984, and I was obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with Logan's Run when I was a kid, which probably dates me. Um, <laughs> When Picasso became bored of painting people, he started representing them as cubes and other abstract forms. The world called him a genius. I've spent my entire surgical career creating the same tired shapes over and over again. The upturned nose, the cleft chin, the ample bosom. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I could do with a knife? That old Spaniard did with a brush. So here we are in the medical pavilion, home to the psychotic Dr. Steinman. We see a poster for the Archivox. Now, the audio diary system is a well-used mechanic in video games, and for good reason. It's an effective way for the writer to impart backstory to the player. However, the use of these large tape diaries each one with a single personal entry simply lying around Rapture is a clumsy contrivance. It's never as believable as, say, hacking an email account in a game that has a contemporary or futuristic setting, or indeed simply finding lost pages of a journal. Now, as a doctor, Steinman is supposed to follow the Hippocratic Oath and do no harm to others. Yet, following his objectivist ideals to the extreme, he completely disregards this. Much like the Howard Rourke character in The Fountainhead, his sole objective is his artistic vision. Now, whilst Rourke uses architecture for his artistic vision, Steinman practices in biological art with hideous consequences. Now, I say Steinman's psychotic, but in truth, most of the rapture citizens have been rendered insane, twisted by too much gene splicing. During World War One, the surgeons in the field of plastic surgery dedicated themselves to the maxillofacial reconstruction of veterans who suffered from head injuries from shell explosions, bullet wounds and mustard gas. This was called Project Facade, and some of the results were quite horrific. It was mostly experimentation with skin grafts and replacing lost noses, jaws and cheekbones with prosthetics. The art team took Project Facade as inspiration for the splicer designs, it's a nice touch that they are ashamed enough to wear masks to conceal their own features, possibly avoiding their own reflections so they don't have to feel so repelled. Okay, so we're coming up to another key scene, and it's one that presents the player with a choice. Do we harvest or save these little sisters? Once a little girl who has turned host to a parasitic sea slug has changed this child into something quite grotesque. The macabre way that she prods at corpses with her needle and then sucks the bodily fluids from a rubber baby bottle teeth is disturbing. When Atlas and Tenenbaum plead with you to harvest or save these little sisters, it kind of reminds me of those cartoons where you see a character's conscience represented by having a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other. It's a binary choice that essentially becomes altruistic or objectivist in your actions to these little sisters. 
Oh, the way she backs away from the player certainly made me feel uncomfortable the first time I played it. Look, right now we're going to harvest the little sister and we'll explore the consequences of that later in the video. It's understandable that the developers didn't show anything too graphic here. Showing a representation of a child being killed in any media format for entertainment isn't needed. You did the right thing. Just remember, them things aren't people no more. And it's Dr. Tenenbaum they've got to thank for us. The death penalty and rapture. Councils in an uproar. Rights in the streets, they say. But this is the time for leadership. Action must be taken against the smugglers. Any contact with the surface exposes rapture to the very parasites we fled from. If you stretch necks or a small price to pay for our ideals. So, there's no room for religion and objectivism or in rapture, as evidenced by the hung smuggler with his contraband of Bibles and crucifixes. The very nature of rapture being under the sea means that resources will always be limited. So of course it's going to create a divide of the haves and have-nots. Neptune's bounty is a dirty food processing area and someone's going to have to gut the fish or do the dirty work. While the Ryans and the Tenenbaums of rapture lead a life of relative comfort. We see that religion starts to take a hold on rapture and that Ryan needs to destroy the source of the trouble. Curious that the Sunday school song that's been sung is about a certain power over little girls or a little sister. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak but he is strong. Arcadia is home to this lush verdant park full of trees. Considering where we are, it's an incongruous setting, but mechanically it has its purpose. Arcadia is the lungs of the city, with the trees providing a breathable air instead of some elaborate air pump system. Now, if I remember my biology classes correctly, a key ingredient to photosynthesis is sunlight, an ingredient that's surely lacking in the bottom of the ocean floor. I, uh, I guess it's best not to look too closely at these things. Here, Ryan is willing to literally choke the life out of the citizens to stop our progress by poisoning the trees. We're here off on another fetch quest to halt the damage that Ryan's done. Unfortunately, the fetch quests are the heart of Bioshock's mission structure. Fetch the key from Steinman. Fetch the camera in Neptune's bounty. Fetch the enzyme to counteract the poison. It's a shame that all there is to it is fetch quests, as I'm not particularly fond of them. However, to the game's credit, it never feels like a chore like it does in some MMO games. It always teases the player with more backstory via the audio diaries, or introduces new variants of enemy like the teleporting Houdini splicers. Ah, that's better. Atlas Ryan. Atlas Ryan. Da 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 da. Time was, you could get something decent on the radio. The artist has a duty to seduce the ear and delight the spirit. So say goodbye to those two blowhards 
and hello to an evening with Sander Cohen. So, after saving the trees in Arcadia, we found ourselves trapped in Fort Frolic, the theatre district in Rapture. I love this section. As you enter, the spotlight shines on you and makes you the star, taking centre stage at this part of the story. And we're introduced to Sander Cohen for the first time. Lunatic that he is. The lead designer for the Fort Frolic level was Jordan Thomas. Thomas had previously worked with Irrational Games and Looking Glass Studios, with his most notable early work being the Shalebridge Cradle level in Thief 3, which was genuinely creepy and utterly brilliant. He later became the creative lead designer of Bioshock 2, and is currently reunited with Levine in the production of Bioshock Infinite. One of the many notable aspects of Bioshock is its wonderful use of period music. Here, Thomas briefly explains why the music is such a powerful tool when creating the atmosphere in Rapture. You also hear that creepy period music, you know, like the, the sort of tunes of the 40s that were very idealistic. And when you set them up against uh, the kind of nightmare that its people have turned into, the Rapture, the Rapture people... It's, it's very sad, and, and, and that makes you think a little bit as each time you fire a shot. Sander Cohn was one of the founding elite of Rapture. The creation of his character was clearly influenced by real-life artists such as Salvador Dali and the American entertainer George M. Cohen. Sander is a composer, poet, playwright and sculptor. Now, it's his work as a sculptor that impacts the most on the player. His statues are created by murdered splicers set in plaster. Cohen leaves these macabre tableaus dotted around Fort Frolic, and some of which are wonderfully eerie. He's a terrible, terrible poet, though. The Wild Bunny by Sander Cohen I want to take the ears off, but I can't. I hop, and when I hop, I never get off the ground. It's my curse, my eternal curse. I want to take the ears off, but I can't. It's my curse, it's my fucking curse. I want to take the ears off, please, take them off. So, the structure here is the same as the rest of the game. It's a fetch quest. Here, Cohen wants you to hunt down and kill four of his protégés and photograph their corpses for his new masterpiece, the Quad Tick. Through the audio diaries, it's intimated that they were all former lovers of his at one point. Like Steinman, Cohen is completely focused on his art and oblivious to any moral cost in creating it. Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers from his Nutcracker Suite plays, and again the spotlight is focused on you. What becomes a simple fight for survival is transformed into this beautiful violent waltz. It's a scene that's reminiscent of Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, and it's highly effective here too. 
throughout the game we occasionally see ghosts. They remind me of Nigel Neal's phenomenal ghost story, The Stone Tape. Inasmuch as these aren't the restless or wronged spirits of the dead, but echoes from a past and a side effect from the plasmid use. Again, like the Audio Diary system, they're a brilliant way of telling the backstory to the player. Coming up is perhaps the most powerful scene featuring these echoes. We see the fate of Jasmine Jolene, Andrew Ryan's favourite stripper and good time girl. I thought you had forgotten about poor Jasmine, but I am so glad you didn't. I'm sorry, Mr. Ryan, I didn't know. I didn't know Fontaine had something to do with it. I, what? What are you doing? No! No, no, please! I loved you, dude! No, no, please, no! No! We can hear how effective the music can be in setting the horror of a scene. Here we have the Andrew sisters singing a jolly tune in the gramophone while we're witness to the aftermath of this brutal murder. So, with her mission here finally complete, Cohen sees us off with a farewell befitting of his character. We get a plasmid for our reward though, and we do get a choice of killing him here. It's not recommended, as you can see him again later on at Olympus Heights, where he can grant you the access to a valuable power of the People Weapon Upgrade Station. So, we head off to Hephaestus. Advanced deployment, lot 111, Dr. Suchong, client Fontaine Futuristics. Baby is now a year old, weighs 58 pounds, and possesses gross musculature of a fit 19-year-old. The results are disappointing, but within expected tolerances. Now, if Arcadia were the lungs of the city, then Hephaestus is most definitely the heart. Everything here has a red-coloured hue due to the geothermal vents on the ocean floor. And there's the arterial-like halls branching off into the separate chambers of the power station. It's actually quite fitting as we're heading into the heart of the story and our showdown with Andrew Ryan. But not before we gather some more components to get us on our way. This time, it's to make an EMP bomb and, to be truthful, the reasons to make these items are becoming less and less interesting the more the game goes on. It's a great shame as it's the story that's now propelling the player forward. A man builds a city at the bottom of the sea. That's a marvel. Another man happens to be on a plane that crash lands on the same city in the middle of the ocean. Why, that sounds more like 
Whenever we die in the game, we get resurrected into these mysterious Vita chamber pods. It's a neat use of a checkpoint system and it works well. Many gamers have bemoaned the fact that it's a system that's open to abuse. You can't conceivably go through the game only using the wrench. Gamers complained that this game of attrition got boring, hence the game was boring. But they're wrong. Irrational gives you this wonderful playground where you can set traps, hack the security systems to your favour and experiment with these plasmid powers. It's simply unfair to dismiss a game because of a player's lack of creative imagination. Throughout, Ryan goads the player, but more interestingly, he gives us glimpses of the truth. The worm looks up and sees the face of God. But look around. It's a regular convention of worms in here. They all had mothers, fathers, people who loved them. They got married, got their wives. What makes you think you're any different? I haven't chosen the spot for you on the wall yet. Let me know if you have a preference. So, here we are coming up to not only the most pivotal scene in the game, but in my opinion, one of the most memorable in this generation of gaming. We hear that rhythmic pulsing sound resembling the actions of a heart as the truth is finally revealed. to murder me. In the end, what separates a man from a slave? Money? Power? No. A man chooses. A slave obeys. You think you have memories. A farm. A family. An airplane. A crash. And then this place. Was there really a family? Did that airplane crash? Or was it hijacked? Forced down. Forced down by something less than a man. Something bred to sleepwalk through life until they are activated by a simple phrase spoken by their kindly master. Was a man sent to kill, or a slave? A man chooses. A slave obeys. 
come in. Stop, would you kindly? Would you kindly? Powerful phrase. Familiar phrase. Would you kindly? Would you kindly get this? Would you kindly find that? Would you kindly find that? Would you kindly find Would you kindly get this? Would you kindly head to Ryan's office and kill the son of a bitch? Sit. Would you kindly? Stand. Would you kindly? Run. Stop. Turn. A man chooses. A slave obeys. Again, control is taken away from Jack. This time from Ryan, who decides to die how he sees fit. Kill! Underpinning his point that he is the master and you are nothing but a slave. Control is also taken away from us, the player, and it proceeds to defy our expectations of some climactic boss fight. Something that we've slavishly come to expect from a game's antagonist. Now, for me, Levine is kind of breaking the fourth wall here and using Ryan to comment on the fact that we gamers will blindly follow what's instructed of us by the game, or in this case, the game's unreliable narrator, despite these actions not really making any sense. We see a power-up and we'll blindly use it, but would you really happily inject some unknown substance into your body? or indeed for go escaping this incredibly hostile environment to go murder a stranger because another stranger asked you to. No, you wouldn't, but a majority of us did in this game without ever thinking. In essence, the gamer is just as much a slave as what Jack is. Now, the tool of an unreliable narrator isn't new to games. Indeed, Levine himself has used it previously with System Shock 2, but it's rarely as deftly handled as it is here. The final part of the game is about Jack and perhaps the gamer establishing their own will for the first time. One of the children came and sat in my lap. I push her off. I shout, get away from me. I can see the Adam oozing out of the corner of her mouth. is thick and green. Her filthy hair hanging in her face, dirty clothes, and that dead glow in her eye. I feel hatred like I never felt before in my chest, bitter, burning fury. I can barely breathe. And suddenly I know it is not this child I hate. 
So we wake up in a safe place after the betrayal of Fontaine. Now, of course, the clues were always there. The tattooed chains on the wrist symbolising Jack's slavery. The Vita chambers working because Jack has the same DNA sequence as his dad, Ryan. And the Patrick and Moira poster in Fort Frolic, clearly inspiration for Atlas's fictional family. This is a great section of the game as it offers us a little respite from the mad violence that we've endured since the air crash. Seeing the children playing and their drawings on the wall is nice, however, it actually instilled a creeping dread within me. Now, much like I've done for this video, the first time I played Bioshock, I harvested every little system I could find because the game told me it would give me more Adam, more power and a better chance at survival. I was thinking like a gamer. Jesus Christ, that was it. I really couldn't handle that. So when I first played Bioshock and came to this scene, I restarted the game from scratch. It was a simple binary choice, an easy button press, and it was ultimately my choice and actions that resulted in the murder of these children. Yes, it's fictional video game children, but the horror was still there. For the first time ever, a game had really connected with me, and I was utterly appalled by the results of my actions. Who's he? He's the one who saved me. So, replaying the game results in a simple alteration to the girl's script, but for me, it was so worth it. I felt clean. So we're off to Apollo Square, the residential district of Rapture. This is where Fontaine's little sister orphanage and homes for the poor are based. The homeless ultimately turn into Fontaine's foot soldiers in the revolution under Fontaine's new persona, Atlas. Again, influences to Ayn Rand's work is apparent here, with posters asking who is Atlas, referencing the who is John Galt posters in her novel Atlas Shrugged. This is a great section, as we get to have a wee poke around at where the main characters live, and we see the sad results of the Civil War's impact on the citizens. Our mission here is to find the formula that can break Jack's mental conditioning, so we aren't at the mercy of Fontaine's commands. Now, I've been rather hard on the fetch quest system in this game, and it's unfair of me. In Bioshock, the design is really centred to the curiosity of the player. The levels are quite open, and to an extent, it grants the player their own agency in the game world. It's tricky to have this exploratory gameplay and still lead the player to the goal. Now, like other games, Bioshock tackles this in different ways, there's a quest arrow that leads you to the destination, something I personally don't use. A map you can consult. And more interestingly, there are visual and audio clues such as changes in lighting, splicer conversations, music, and the passing mentions in audio diaries. Now, too many recent shooters limit the player in what they can do in a game world, to the point where military games like Call of Duty and Medal of Honor take linearity to the point of being an on-rail shooter 
that punishes the player for their curiosity by killing them for daring to stray off course. Rapture is an amazing environment and it's wonderful that the game encourages you to go out and explore all the details within its game world. The actual fictional reasons as to why you explore the world may be weak, but it still gives the player the impetus to find that many little visual stories found throughout. As the saying goes, it's more about the journey than the destination. That is step one of turning you into one of those disgusting big deaths. The only way to get through that door Fontaine went through is to have a little one open it for you. And they will only trust you if you look like, sound like, and even smell like one of those big stinking brutes. There's something mournful and so dreadfully sad about these big daddies. It's partly to do with their haunting whale-like moans and the pathetic way they just stomp around looking for their little companions. It's also because the creations of these rubber-suited golems is just so abhorrent. Criminals or unfortunates that have crossed Ryan have been genetically modified into these hulking automatons. Skin and organs grafted to the suit, vocal cords cut, lobotomized to remove any rational thought and mentally conditioned to protect these little sisters. The background into the creation of Big Daddies and the protective bond is fully explored in more detail in Bioshock 2 to brilliant effect, and that's a game I'll have a look at in a later episode of Gaming Autopsy. Now, some friends of mine get a little freaked out by Bioshock, disturbed by its atmosphere and the admittedly occasional jump scare. Some even consider it a horror game like the Dead Space or Resident Evil games. Now, I've never felt like that about Bioshock, but that's not to say I haven't felt horrified while playing the game. As I said earlier, I was repelled by my actions to these little sisters. And another horror for me is when I first saw these cells in the orphanage, which had been turned into Skinner boxes. I guess it's the horror of science without conscience. It's really akin to the atrocities that the Nazis committed during the Holocaust. In this case, it's to determine if the emotion of love is a trained behaviour, and then to train these girls into loving the big daddies by giving them electric shocks if they press the wrong button. Now, Sushong and Tenenbaum are interesting characters and are both very similar to one another. Tenenbaum was a Jewish prisoner in Auschwitz as a teenager. She witnessed firsthand the experiments the Nazi scientists did to the prisoners and was so irritated by their scientific errors that she not only corrected them, she ultimately helped the Nazis. A hell of a way to survive the camp. And we have Sushong, completely detached from any compassionate emotion, a sociopathic scientist who has no issues in performing mental and physical experiments on children, including Jack. It's ultimately guilt that makes Tenenbaum realise the damage that her experiments have done to these girls, mixed with a possible guilt from the death camp, and she seeks redemption by trying to fix her mistakes. Sushong never achieves this though. Since Frankenstein, it's been a well-used tradition in fiction that the scientist's creation turn in its creator. And the same thing happens to Shushong. And rather satisfying it is too. Clinical trial protector system. Plagiumidilot 255. Dr. Suchong, 
Client Orion Industries. Very frustrating day. I can't seem to get the damn big daddies to imprint on the little brats. The protection bond is just not forming. Papa Chichang. Get, 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 get away. Uh, maybe if I modify the genetic sequence... Papa Shush. Chiller. Sequence to allow for... Get away, you filthy little shit! What? Here we take on the role of a big daddy and protect the little sister while she collects Adam. In truth, the first time I played this, I thought another double cross would happen and instead of defeating Fontaine, I would be turned into a big daddy forever and just stomp around Rapture as one of them. It's a rather downbeat ending, sure, but it's probably better than what's actually coming up. So, Jack is in full control of his mental faculties and we want vengeance. Unfortunately for us, it also means that Bioshock takes us to familiar territory, the final boss fight, and it's an awful one at that. Go! Go now! Fontaine has now consumed so much Adam that he now ironically enough resembles the bronze statue of Atlas, the Greek Titan. Throughout, the game has defied our expectations as gamers and has been all the better for it. This definitely weakens the whole experience. Anyway, you'll see the good ending which I actually really like. It deals with family and it fits in with Jack's story. Jack's family and his memories of them were never real. However, his loss would still be profound. It makes sense for him to build a real family. And we'll also see the evil ending which I think is just rubbish. They offered you everything, yes. And in return, you gave them what I have come to expect of you. Brutality. You took what you wanted. All the atom, all the power. And Rapture trembled. But in the end, even Rapture was not enough for you. Your father was terrified the world would try to steal the secrets of his city. But not you, for now you have stolen the terrible secrets of the world. Oh, that evil ending is rubbish. It just makes no sense, really, as there simply be no intimation that Jack would covet any nuclear power and use it. They offered you this city. And you refused it. And what did you do instead? What I've come to expect of you. You saved them. You gave them the one thing that was stolen from them. A chance. A chance to learn. To find love. To live. And in the end, what was your reward? You never said. But I think I know. A family.
Okay, thank you, Mark. Now begins our discussion on the finer points. I could buck the podcasting trend and not play the I'm Andrew Ryan clip, but as everybody else has found, there is no better way to get listeners in the mood than this stirring and timeless piece of gaming history. I am Andrew Ryan, and I'm here to ask you a question. Is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow? No, says the man in Washington, it belongs to the poor. No, says the man in the Vatican, it belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow, it belongs to everyone. I rejected those answers. Instead, I chose something different. I chose the impossible. I chose rapture. artist would not fear the censor, where the scientist would not be bound by petty morality, where the great would not be constrained by the small. And with the sweat of your brow, rapture can become your city as well. Okay, we're back, and this is the second time that me and Mark have had to do this, because we did it on Monday, it's now Friday, and the first time we did it, after two hours, it didn't record bad words were said <laughs> well, thankfully not at each other so what we're going to do is hopefully this makes us more on the ball and more aware of what is a worthwhile topic to pursue and what actually doesn't really particularly lead anywhere ok so the first one is and see if you can do this even quicker than you did before <laughs> and even clearer and this obviously James and Gary jump in on this one spice it up Ex- explain <laughs> objectivism in words a simpleton like myself would understand. Right. There's four basic tenets to objectivism. And we have to understand that Randian objectivism is much different to the objectivism that you see in the game. So Ayn Rand's definition is that, one, reality exists. And this means that facts are facts, and that is just what they are. Wishing for something to be different just doesn't work. A dog is a dog. You can't wish it to become a cat, because that's magic. Magic isn't real. Reason is the process we use to understand the reality around us. This involves the application of rules of logic, that we analyse the information around us, which we receive from our senses. So, my phone isn't working... Why? There's not enough power. Logic dictates that I should charge my phone up to use the power. Three, everyone has value as an individual, not as something to be used by others. They should not be expected to sacrifice their life, their freedom, and their happiness for others, and vice versa. Therein, the pursuit of their own happiness and own self-rational interest is the highest moral purpose of their life. And the final one is the ideal political economic system of unbridled capitalism. That's it. Now, by unbridled, we're... Unregulated. Unregulated <coughs> minus taxes. Yes. Minus any any kind of control. Mm. Yes. See, a, a government can only act to protect a man's rights if they're, you know, physically <coughs> being taken advantage it's of. three things, isn't it? It's- Criminality, law, and I've got the other one now. 
But yeah, yeah. basically, um, with objectivism, you have police to prevent criminals. You have the law to resolve disputes yeah. in a reasonable way. Mm. Um, but you don't, per se, have government. Objectivism has never been carried out on this planet in a way that actually works, at least not consciously adhering to these tenets over a historically recorded extended time period. So what Bioshock is, is a potted uh, fictional example of it being put into place and then going badly wrong because it is, by its very definition, contradictory. If you put people in this situation, things are going to go wrong. Yeah, Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead, um, they've got like paragons as their lead characters and yeah. humans aren't like that, you know. We all have our dark sides and Bioshock is a shining example of what would happen if real sort of people took the objective side here yeah. and ran with it. In fact, a more sort of, uh, a more recent example on Gonzo Planet would be the, when we covered Deadwood. Yeah. Because Deadwood is the archetypal, um, society that um, fulfill objectivism because there were no controls. It was uh, a free market economy in effect. People could do what they want, and self. And most people were self-serving. And you can see what happens to humans when that occurs. Yeah, there's a lot of stabbing going on, and people being fed to pigs. <laughs> yes. If anything, is kind of a good example as to why we do have rules and control. Yeah. If you boil it down, it, it comes down to uh, I've got to look out for number one. I have to uh, do what's right by me. Now, the, the interesting thing about it is that Andrew Ryan rejects and would have everyone else reject the idea of helping each other. Well, not necessarily. Cooperation he actively encourages, which, again, is... Ah, um, helping each other for their benefits. For their yeah. If, if you gain, help someone yeah. else for your own gain, that's okay. But you should yeah. never help someone else out of some uh, Pers- perceived notion of... Persuading somebody else to do something for you is randy. Yeah. Uh, but but doing something because someone has told you to isn't. And it, it's it's a kind of weird... It's <laughs> yeah, a wishy-washy it philosophy. It's yes, wishy-washy, but it's also incredibly specific and not allowing for any kind of variation and, and any kind of natural chaos. So it, it can't possibly work. It comes down to the fact that Andrew Ryan is an engineer and has tried to put the human spirit onto an electronic map and say, okay, right, well, if everybody just follows all of these rules and all of these codes, the whole thing requires people to trammel themselves. You're not allowed to leave Rapture, and you have to accept the basic tenets of objectivism, which isn't freedom at all. Everyone's highest moral purpose is to make themselves happy. Mm. Automatically, that counteracts anyone else's happiness, because interests will clash. In In a world of kind of infinite choices, people will want the same thing. Simple thing, let's look at a simple basis of a relationship, for example. If two guys fancy one girl in Rapture, by the notion of their own happiness, both must then go to get in a relationship with that girl and that they will be the happy. But automatically, they're making the other unhappy. The philosophy is based on what happens in the observable world, hence the objectivism. So if you look at the, the observable natural world, then the order of things is normally that species will compete against other species and the fittest survive. And even within a species, one animal will compete against another animal and the fittest will survive. You know, that's why you have mm. mating rituals and all this kind of stuff. And that's really what, where that philosophical bent comes from because mm. this is what is observed to be reality. Therefore, this is what we should apply for everything in humanity. It's a dog-eat-dog world. 
Although some scientists these days are saying that men are actually different from dogs. Again, though, it's 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 trying to um, mechanize humans to a degree. It's it's, a, it's, it's, it's actually a select. Them. Yeah, it's also a selective a, a view of nature as well, mm. because uh, obviously, if you look beyond what's observable, and you look at things like you know ant colonies and bee colonies, which it's harder to observe. You've got to you've got to basically follow behavior. Yeah. Um, you can see that actually that's not always true in nature. Andrew Ryan hates ant behavior. For that very reason. He goes on and on about that in the Rapture book, which I heartily recommend people uh, read. I've just started reading last night, actually. Yeah. If I didn't care More than words can say If I didn't care Would I feel this way Then why do I thrill? And what makes my head go round and round while my heart stands still? He left America because... Well, there were a variety of reasons. One, he was sick to death of taxes, so that's one of the, the main things he didn't want to bring to Rapture. So the idea was that he wasn't going to ask for his share of anyone else's profits, uh, and no one else could ask for profits from him. Uh, he was also absolutely ter- well, yeah, terrified of uh, nuclear war. As far as he was concerned, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, were it for him. The site of, as far as he was concerned, parasites using science in a perverted way to destroy what they couldn't occupy and he was convinced that uh, nuclear war was going to happen and decimate the entire surface world so he could only go like an ostrich burying its head in the sand he could only go underwater to hide from it well again that's a tenet of objectivism is that it it is anti-war but it's pro-defense so it's anti-war because it the philosophy is that um everything can be reasoned so mm. therefore there should never be a need for war um but of course as he discovers in rapture <laughs> that's that's not uh what happens and in fact i think i do it's a while since i played it but i've played it a few times there's i believe there's an audio diary where he really kind of struggles with this the fact that you know he 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 built this society to avoid this this mm. this conflict. He doesn't and, get why it's suddenly showing up. It doesn't. And he fit doesn't into want his to. World. He doesn't want to fight it, but he's being forced to fight. He's always saying things like, "This is not what I want to do," but I'm being forced to do it by Fontaine. Mm. So he blames Fontaine for making him do it. But ultimately, it's the fact that you know his his principles that he's applied are starting to fall apart. This was an audio diary I picked up on my most recent playthrough, and I'd never picked it up before. Dr. Su Chong, frankly, I'm shocked by your proposal. If we were to modify the structure of our commercial plasmid line as you propose, to have them make the user vulnerable to mental suggestion through pheromones, would we not be able to effectively control the actions of the citizens of Rapture? Free will is the cornerstone of this city. The thought of sacrificing it is abhorrent. However... We are indeed in a time of war. If Atlas and his bandits have their way, will they not turn us into slaves? And what will become of free will then? Desperate times call for desperate measures. 
and, that, and that's complete and utter selling out of all of the principles of objectivism. He may as well have just cashed it in at that point and said it didn't work. And I think that may have been the thing that actually broke him in the end and what leads to his effective suicide. It bores large corporate regulation and control, but then ultimately creates it just to defeat Fontaine by mm. taking over his plasmid. He uh, liked the idea of competition with Fontaine, but uh, again, this was eliminating the uh, propensity for humans to take competition too far. There's a, a, a great bit in the uh, book where two shopkeepers are arguing because one of them wants to... His competitor is undercutting him on price and he can't compete with that. So he calls for regulation so that he can stay in business and he's not allowed to do that. And he's basically told, you know, take this like a man by Andrew Ryan. You know, be a man about this. Yeah. Just, just, just do better at your job and this is entirely down to you. So the shopkeeper goes into his house, comes back out with a gun, shoots his competitor and then shoots himself. Because he's not allowed to leave, he has no choice left. There's a similar kind of uh, audio log in the original Bioshock where it, I think it's called a better product. Gregory, don't come whining to me about market forces and don't expect me to punish citizens for showing a little initiative. If you don't like what Fontaine is doing, well, I suggest you find a way to offer a better product. Yeah. And he does kind of take that back seat. And he, yeah, there's another one where he's saying, like, oh, Fontaine is someone to watch, but he will not, he doesn't want to interfere because again, it kind of goes against the, the whole principle of everyone is there to do their own work to, for their own benefit, ideally to the corporated, to cooperation of others and the ultimate benefit of Rapture, but not to interfere in each other's business. So initially he does kind of take a back seat and it works and there's only so long that that can work. The trouble is if you take a back seat while someone is trying to ultimately usurp you. Well, Fontaine's not playing by the rules, ultimately. He's, yeah, um, exactly. And he's smuggling, which is the one thing that uh, Andrew considers to be death penalty worthy, uh, because that's contact with the outside world. But clearly the desire is there for everybody in Rapture who wants to uh, uh, contact with the outside world and who wants to send letters home. Something as simple as that. I think it's also um, the idea that a lot of the what we see counterfeit goods as like Bibles and crucifixes. Yeah, there's clearly um, desperation in, in rapture, and regardless of the anti-religious rules, um, people are craving some sort of religion there. Yeah, Andrew Ryan is of course fervently anti-religion, rather in the same way that uh, Scientologists are fervently against psychologists, psychiatrists, and getting your own professional counselling outside of their strictured inner circle. The idea being that if you start bringing religion into your life in rapture, there's a possibility you could start living for other people or living selflessly, or possibly going by a herd mentality, which is not something he wanted. Similarly, if Scientologists sought psychological help, they'd see that they're effectively in a pyramid scheme, one which you're not allowed to leave. There are other parallels between Scientology and the Bioshock games. Elwon Hubbard, like Comstock and Andrew Ryan, was charismatic enough to be able to assemble his own cult. Though I'm not quite sure whether I'd prefer Scientology to operate under the sea or up in the clouds. Is it better that they're in full view? 
the the line between everybody apparently being free and being effectively a prisoner of an autocracy or even a dictatorship comes to the surface once you spend enough time examining the world. You're instantly introduced to that in the game. Like the, the moment you step off that bathysphere, you're standing over placards that say "You don't own us." Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rapture is dead, and people recognised before far long, you know, far earlier than than Ryan did, that the the idea behind Rapture didn't work. It was an interesting experiment, but it didn't work. And he then trapped them there. He then trapped them because he's, he's just stubborn and will not, will not recognise it. Mm. Let's talk about the design of Rapture, actually, because this the design of Rapture and the Big Daddies and Little Sisters are the two most striking, memorable aspects, visually at least, of, the, of this game. The steampunk aesthetic. Certainly. Uh, can this be considered steampunk? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Art Deco steampunk. In fact, there's something to be said about it being Art Deco, because this is a style that has its roots in the architecture of ancient Egypt, specifically the palaces of the pharaohs. So to offset this apparently classless system, you've got a reminder of ridiculous class inequality. And this is a style that was very prevalent in uh, L.A. and Chicago in the 40s. You'll recognise it from Batman the Animated Series, actually, and lots and lots of film noir. Rapture, while being set up as somewhere where everyone could succeed based on their own initiative and the sweat of their own back, ends up with an enormous contingent of underclasses and the utterly impoverished now trapped under the sea with absolutely no systems in place to offer them aid. You can see where they live in the slums and paupers drop in Bioshock 2. These would be the slaves, the labourers, the have-nots. Because if you select from thousands of poets and artists and scientists, someone still needs to install a toilet main. And not everyone could be the best toilet main installer under the sea. Marge, kids, everything's going to be just fine. Now go upstairs and pack your bags. We're going to start a new life under the sea. Crustaceans under the sea. Oh man, that's your solution to everything—to move under the sea. It's not gonna happen. Not with that attitude. Okay, so where were we? Oh yeah, Art Deco. Yeah. really had not been explored that often in, in video games. There's there's something to be said for Fallout 3. Rapture is singular in its design. I was racking my brains the other day to work out if there were films that were like Bioshock. Mm. And there's plenty of films which have similar looks to Bioshock, uh, it, both um, Columbia and Rapture. There's City of Lost Children got mentioned, Dark City, uh, even, and no one mentioned this, but I'm loath to say it, more specifically with Columbia, Wild Wild West. <laughs> Let the party begin! Yeah. Cowboy steampunk. Horrific yeah. though that may be. There's touches of Metropolis in there as well. Yes. Yeah. Actually, you know what? Metropolis is probably one of the closest in terms of thematically 
and visually. The other thing that, uh, that most of the films don't have is the, the dense political and social themes that run throughout Bioshock. You know, you're going to have to look really within the realm of sci-fi for that level of thematic complexity and that level of visual splendor. By definition, it has to take you out of the established world and introduce you to a world that's very similar to our own. So it pretty much has to be sci-fi. It's almost a testament to the, the medium of video games that I, I, I personally think only video games could could truly convey a world of this kind of depth. The only other way of detailing this much, the overall political structure, the general day-to-day life of, of its citizens, the overall concepts of the, the construction of things, and, and the past of this, this city, the only other way to do that would be a book. And even then, it would be a very info-dump-heavy book. A long-running TV series like Battlestar Galactica could actually do it. There's a lot of deeper themes handled in that, and they sell, they sell mm. the detail of the world. But a film over a two-hour period could not do this. And a book, even an illustrated one, can't possibly measure up in terms of visual impact. Even a long-running graphic novel. Drawing you in the first person into the world is something video games absolutely have in their favour as a medium. The design of the original Rapture is the 1934 Chicago World's Fair, and the design of Columbia is the 1893 World's Fair. I'm actually reading um, The Devil in the White City mm-hmm. by Eric Larson, which is very interesting um, about the, the creation and that went into the 1893 World's Fair, the designer behind that. And there's also the story of A.A. Holmes, who was... Uh, brutal serial killer that built his hotel of horrors just around the corner from the World Fair. I've been trying to work out why uh, the Bioshock games feel quite so much like a fairground ride, specifically a ghost train, something which you're, uh, again, trammeled along and kind of forced through on a rail. It's, it, there's the illusion of freedom, but you can't, you can't really play Bioshock like a sandbox game. You're going to be sent to do fetch quest after fetch quest. Theme parks now are based on either the traditional Coney Island carnival funfair circus riffing type of theme park or Disney. And Disneyland is based on the world fairs. There was a a meeting in 1953 where Walt Disney met with the heads of uh, various theme parks to suggest that he could get people to stay longer in his park that he was developing that actually opened in in, uh, 55 and to spend more. And they threw it out the window and said, you're crazy, this whole thing is going to bomb and fold. There is a lot of Walt Disney in Andrew Ryan, only he's the evil dark side. Yeah. Although Which one? actually, yeah, uh, <laughs> Zan and various other people would be very quick to point out Walt Disney's rather more right-wing leanings. But they're both visionaries, undeniably, and they both have that little moustache and the propensity for brown suits. The World's Fair thing is supposed to be absolutely inspirational, specifically in, in this case to the American people, and to show them this is how you can live and this is how the future can be. But you don't live there. If you live there, you're effectively staying in a fairground and some of the doors are painted on. There's even instances throughout Rapture, um, specifically there's a bit in Bioshock 2, isn't a spoiler, when you're at Sinclair Solutions, they show you the 
front, the facade of there, this is where we develop the plasmids, and then you get to go backstage to where all the chairs are covered in blood and the actual horrible things went on. Uh, what they were trying to do was get everyone to live in Walt Disney World. You can almost see, like, a, there's an element of... The World's Fair is obviously like showing off the potential of these. These are things that could happen, things that you could have. Mm. And all of the adverts you find around um, Rapture, it's kind of different to, like, whereas, like, um, with adverts you get nowadays, you know, cars, perfume, and so forth, it's generally focused on the product. Yeah. But all of the adverts in Rapture are focused on, essentially, the, the product, but also kind of the lifestyle you can have. All the pictures of um, plasmids kind of show people's reactions to them. So, like, a, a woman impressed by a hand on fire. And it's all kind of, look, this is not just what you, you can have, but this is the effect you can have. Yeah. And kind of selling that idea of a better lifestyle. That's something that's almost never changed about advertising. There was a brief window where they would make a fuss about the product in question. Salem gives you a modern filter, plus rich tobacco taste, smoothed with menthol, softened with fresh air. For Salem's special paper breathes in fresh air with every puff to bring you Salem's air-softened taste. There's a wonderful world of softness, a wonderful world of freshness. It's the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful world of Salem cigarettes. But usually they are selling you the lifestyle. Usually they are telling you that people who buy these products, their lives are better. Yours could be too, free from all those hassles you feel on a daily basis. Cry out for Big Daddy's help. Make him think you're a little sister. Watch as he fights to protect you. Yeah, there's a feeling that nothing's permanent. Mm. And if everything is consequence-free, there's like this lack of responsibility for yourself and others. That plays into the soundtrack as well. It's, it's, this is from an era where everybody was willfully naive. I love films like LA Confidential because they expose the poisonous, disgusting underbelly at the heart of every painted-on utopia. Like, uh, LA in the 40s and 50s had been prefabbed and thrown up and, you know, using post-war money to show this wonderful society that, you know, this booming America, but at the heart of it was corruption and crime. Yet the music of that time is also bright and gay and fun and going to be outrageous. And it took things like the blues and jazz to actually tell the truth within music and to talk about hurt and loss because regular music wasn't going to be doing that. So you get this idealistic music playing throughout Rapture when you, when you wander through it. It actually reminded me of the beginning of Peter Jackson's King Kong. I'm sitting on top of the world. Everybody's rich and we're in the money type music's playing. It's showing people in the middle of the Great Depression. Everyone's just on work lines and being turned away from jobs and eating out of bins. And that's what Rapture has become, this horrific, chaotic destruction. And yet all the music is is still playing, going, we're in the money, everything's going to be fine. It's the illusion of hope. It's almost like you need to kind of, if you are the powers that be, you need to kind of inspire hope in the people. Uh, because if you're, if you're just playing depressing songs like, you know, the world's going to end, why bother? Yeah. Then they radio won't bother. Radio in the, the 90s. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
like um, it did. People won't go towards it. You know, you know, LA, like you say, was kind of thrown up as this kind of idyllic, wonderful place because post, you know, with post war warning, because post war everyone was depressed. The world had sunk. Mankind had sunk to its lowest point mm. in terms of the barbaric acts that we can perform. We were horrified as we were, and as you say, Rapture was inspired by partly the whole tax thing, but partly that that's the, the three pages that I've read of uh, Bioshock Rapture, the novel. Yeah. It's it, the thing that decides him is the fact that people can destroy cities with a single bomb the depressing fact and the just the inevitable darkness that will follow that you need something better to hope for to cling on to and if you're not spurring on that idea of hope with music appearance everything just the uh, just the overall atmosphere and the illusion of hope then no one's going to work towards it and no one's going to try and achieve it but it's these two extremes of the dream and the reality and trying mm. to get everyone to stay just keep looking at the dream and avoiding the horrible reality sitting on their shoulder if there had been some sense of look let's be sensible about this let's actually look at the issues we have within rapture they could mm. have prevented all kinds of chaos and destruction. It might even have worked. So the music is one of the things in it actually that's thematically inconsistent mm-hmm. because um, the whole concept is that you know the great and the good of the art world were taken down to rapture so that they could create and do as they wish yeah. without interference. And so, so where's ex- all the original stuff? Exactly. Yeah. You would expect it's after, all coming from Sander Cohen. It's all coming from Sander Cohen. But you would expect to hear his music, you yeah. know, his bizarre music coming you know from more sources but the reason they don't do that of course is because at the end of the day it is a video game and they want to they want the player to feel like this world is based in some sense of reality even though it Mm. is definitely not real they want it to feel like it could be real it could have happened this is a possible um past or future they want to be echoes of our world yeah it's it's the same as um the, the use of music in fallout 3 yeah um, just is, is genius. Like again, like playing these kind of very happy idyllic tunes, um, like a, a maybe, and uh, I don't want to set the world on fire, and was the, the happy times. Because like, I've got the Fallout 3 soundtrack. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start. A flame in your heart. The great one, like the roads are the dustiest, the winds are the gustiest. That one is just singing of this wonderful world that people remember and people want and people want to hope for, and that's being played to, as as, as we said earlier, give people hope. And it's it is in stark contrast to what's going on, yeah. but it brings both the people in that world and then us as the players it connects us to that world that we remember and that we want. Similarly, the uh, the score and the music um, by Gary Scheinman, he plays a lot of strings. Mm. And I, I was listening to the Bioshock 2 soundtrack today, and the very, very thin violins that, that come through, them, it seems like Rapture is hanging on a gossamer strand, and those violin strings are the last possible finger on the ledge before the whole thing comes toppling down. And if you listen and hear all the rumbling bass notes are the sea pushing and pushing this man-made structure inexorably to the point of collapse. Whereupon nature will come flooding in, freezing cold and impassive 
It's like you can hear the metal groaning against the pressure. I think you can extend that to the actual sound design in the game as well. I think it's one of the, certainly the first games that I really noticed really clever use of background sounds and incidental noises and creaks and groans. And I know a lot of people call out Dead Space for that, but Bioshock also has it in spades mm. um, and uses it to real creepy effect in places. So when you hear the spider spices coming, you hear the noise first. Mm. And, and then um, you look up and, and then you look up and, and hope to see them. Yeah. You just hear this sort of scraping and then the violins come in and it's like, oh God, here we go. Yeah. When you hear like, you know, you can hear from a distance the kind of weird echoing tones of a little sister and the groaning of a big daddy. Yeah. Like, you know, a conflict is, in, is imminent. Actually, let's talk about them now. The striking designs of the big daddies and little sisters, probably the thing that will stick uh, with me for you know yeah you know what my entire life my entire gaming life as as being first in this I never ever hated the big daddies and I still don't I don't think you're supposed to no you're supposed to pity them absolutely I, I do I, I think it's the 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 one of the villains in in all video villains sorry one yes. of the foes antagonists. One of the antagonists in all video games, not just this generation, but generally, where you genuinely feel remorse. And I actually find myself hesitating before killing them. And, and let's uh, use antagonist in uh, inverted commas here as well, because mm. they won't attack you unless you attack them. There's only like two occasions when you are forced to attack and kill a big mm. daddy in the first game. It's an interesting idea that more games need to explore, because generally the vast, vast majority of combat in video games is self-defense. Mm. It's, it's you are under fire and you are firing back. It is kill or be killed. Mm. There, it is you are making that choice every single time to kill. Yeah. And there's no for other game. For your own gain as well. For your own game. The, there's no other game that makes you do that or explores that. And I think, oh, they could, almost could have explored that a little more mm. and kind of you know, made you question it a bit more. Yeah. Uh, unless, uh, if you altruistically decide you're going to free all the little sisters and that's why you're doing it. I had a difficult time explaining to Lyra why I was actually taking the sister for my own in Bioshock 2. But I said that I had to set them all free. And basically, I've been playing so much Bioshock recently, she's seen it happen a lot. And she first off was terrified of the big daddies. And then I showed her that they were actually being very gentle and caring for the little sisters. And now she absolutely adores them. Mm. And you'd think she wouldn't, because the little sisters look creepy as all hell. Also, before I get accused of being a monster, I ensure she's out of the room whenever I do anything particularly grizzly with drills and things. She's become very accustomed to covering her eyes when I tell her to. But she also loves that hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman song from Bioshock 2. And she's been singing that creepily to herself in bed at night. Well, equally, like the you know the big daddy just on its own. Like the, the big daddy was one of the first things I saw of Bioshock. I, I was quite I was a year late to the original Bioshock, mm. and all I knew about it was the big daddies and like you know these massive hulking machines with drills for arms. And I'm looking at it and think they are going to be an absolute night. I bet they're going to like hound you and be a nightmare to take down. Yeah. But it's amazing how just with a slight mannerism and there's almost a kind of a gentle warmth to their groaning yeah. that you can and you know, again the sound design as um, Gary says is 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 phenomenal. That well, with despite sim- what Peter believes. 
because no one wants to attack and kill whales. Yes, exactly. And um, like, it's just amazing with a, a few subtle things like the way it behaves, the way it sounds, the way it moves. You can feel warmth and pity for something that intimidating. Yeah, and deadly as well. Mm. They absolutely can kill you in seconds. Well, the first time you see one, it like it, it doesn't look kindly or fatherly at all. It smashes through a bloody balcony, mm. picks up a splicer, and nails it to the wall with its drill. That doesn't sound too fatherly at all. I was just going to pick up on a point that Mark raised, actually, in his uh, piece about the um, the relationship between the big daddies and the little sisters, and also, you know, you face that ultimate decision, and when it's first given to you, it doesn't appear to be much of a decision at all. Mm. And I was quite interested to hear that um, Mark said that when he played through he, the first time, he, he harvested. Sucked him dry. Now, I've played... I've played the original Bioshock, I think, three times. Yep. I've played Bioshock 2 once, Minerva's Den three times, and I've never, ever felt compelled to <laughs> harvest a little sister, ever. Even to even out of curiosity to see the different ending. I just could not do it. See, I've done so this this playthrough that I'm currently working through of the original, because as soon as I finished Infinite, I wanted to go back and play the original Bioshock. Yep, just me to too, that's why myself. I did that. Yeah. These entire podcasts are because of Infinite's yeah. influence. Well, yeah. I've, I've started playing 2 again as well, because I noticed that I hadn't played it yet on the PS3, so... But, <laughs> I, mean, I am... I am harvesting all of them um, and I'm forcing myself to do it kind of it, it, you it's kind evil of, man I just the, could not do it's, it I, it's the know. same as, it's the same as um, Mass Effect like when I forced myself to go Renegade it's nothing it's not at like all it. It in Mass Effect no. you are murdering a little girl for no, no, your own okay. personal gain I mean I mean, in terms, James. I'm, uh, I mean, in terms of, if you take away the fact that this is a video game and not real, <laughs> I am forcing myself to make one choice rather than another. Let's take away all immoral implications. That is what I'm doing. I'm just forcing myself to make one choice. But sure, You can keep saying that to justify <laughs> You're just following orders, James. I can honestly say that I, I can, I would never do it. I will never do it, and I never have done it. And I... I cannot make that separation. Although I don't see them as being real, I still see it as being a video game. I cannot make that decision. Now, I don't know whether that's because, you know, obviously I'm a father with a little girl myself, but I, pl- I played Bioshock before my daughter was born. And yeah, I, I was going to say. It then, you know, so I, yeah, I I hear what you're saying, but it is nothing like, you know, pulling the left trigger in Mass Effect just to no, see no. Femship slap someone in the face, you know? <laughs> Shoot like, Rogan ahead of schedule. <laughs> When, you know, Atlas does make a convincing argument at the start. <laughs> and as I said in the video, I had my head geared like I was a gamer. This was yeah, just a yeah. game. I was just rattling through to see what was happening, you know. I, I, I do get what you were saying. and I, I understood when I, I saw it in the video and when I edited through it. But Leon in uh, Ken and Rince, when they did their excellent Bioshock podcast, himself said... Uh, that he hasn't got a daughter, he doesn't really have that much of a paternal imperative, but he also considered it unthinkable to actually drain the little sisters entirely. What Leon posited was that anyone heavily into narrative video games would find it similarly uncomfortable to the point where it's not even really a choice. Now, obviously, Mark, you are into narrative in video games. Yeah, but perhaps I've just seen too many horror movies where the, you have these creepy kids or demon children, you know? When you start um, off, that there isn't any direct in- indication that they're, uh, they are the only thing left in Rapture of Innocence. Yeah, yeah. Also, if you just literally saw the box art and then started playing the game, you could be forgiven for considering, ugh, what's that, kill it with fire? 
But that, that's the thing. Uh, to, to go with what Mark was saying, like, yeah, like there are so many horror films where there are creepy little girls, but those creepy little girls are often not a, not actually a little girl. They are some sort of entity disguised as a little girl. Lo and behold, like that, and I've been no, doing. That's what, that's what Atlas said they were. Yeah, like. I know, I know, and I, I went with that, and, and when you actually, when you harvest them, not because you, you guys are never going to do it, so when you I'll harvest them, happens, yeah. The, yeah, the, the little, little girl disappears, and all, and you pick up a slug. And, and you just have a slug that then, you know, that, 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 that's it. There's no kind of, you don't see the girl being like ripped apart or No, anything. because nobody needs to see that. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. To get, take us on a slight tangent, it is quite scary how it can detach you from it. And I am now, Leo, your mockery aside, I am reconsidering my decision to harvest all the little sisters. I played Bioshock last night um, for about three, four hours straight. I then went to bed. I rarely have dreams connected to what I was doing during the day, but last night I did dream I was in this Bioshock-like world that in my head, everything that was happening was... You know when you have a dream and you're like, it doesn't matter, it's a dream. In this case, I, I knew it, I didn't know it was a dream, but in my head it's like, it's okay, none of this is real. Yeah. And I was exploring this Bioshock, um, this rapture-like world populated by my friends and family and people from my past and to get through a certain door I had to kill a certain number of people and I was three kills short and I actually and and I was wandering and I was like right that's a complete stranger and I actually stabbed and it, and now I look, I, I, James it, you're worrying me it horrified me when I woke up honestly it horrified me when I woke up and this is why I'm sharing this with you guys because <laughs> I can't keep it to myself and um, I'm picking random strangers and, and, and stabbed them and that counted and then there was I needed one more I ended up killing just the first person that I bumped into it was it was an old old friend of mine that I hadn't seen and it's it was weird how I felt desensitized in the dream and I can't imagine the little sister harvesting little sisters to have that effect but clearly the first time I've ever harvested little sisters yeah and I have a dream your brain <laughs> uh, is telling you this is how detached you become in playing this game. And that scares Stop me. it. Your brain's <laughs> stalling you. To put your going, does this affect you? Does this affect you, Jack? To, to put your mind at ease somewhat, um, when I was playing Infinite uh, the last couple of weeks, I was having infinite dreams virtually every night. I think it's actually mm. testament to the strength of the narrative and the mm. world in which uh, they create and conjure that you then use that as a template um, for when you are you know sleeping and so it does it does you do find these games do invade your dreams because of the richness and the detail of the world it's mm. something that you know when you're sleeping it's something which your idle brain can hang ideas off of uh, i've been having bioshock dreams for weeks now but it always seems to be focusing mainly on the being claustrophobic and trapped yeah and wet all the time I, I far prefer the world of Colombia because of the sense of freedom that the sky affords. Mine's the opposite because I'm terrified of heights and falling. Oh, so I've had lots of falling dreams, which are always the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, last night I had a dream that I was waiting tables in Rapture whilst listening to various audio diaries of David Cross as a big daddy talking about his internal parasites. I think this is my brain trying to tell me, don't go back to waiting. Them that's got shall get them that's not shall lose. So the Bible said, and it still is news. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. Strong gets more while the weak 
one's name. Empty pockets don't ever make the grave. Mama may have, Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. The bullet point here says the redundancy of the moral choice, because as far as most people are concerned, it's not even really a choice, especially if you know the mechanics of the game. The way it works out, every three little sisters you save rather than harvest, you, because of the present that they give you, you end, only end up 40 atoms shorter than if you just ripped it out of them. And you get bonus plasmids. You'll say you get slightly more, actually, I thought, if you, uh, I believe. Because of the bonus plasmids, you don't have to then spend any of that atom you okay. get on them. Maybe Bioshock them. 2 you get more. Definitely one of them you get Bioshock more. Bioshock 2 you get more, definitely. Yeah, yeah that's probably what I'm remembering. But that's also because you can, you, you can game the system, get the proud parent perk, and then start taking all the atom off them. Just while we're on the, the subject of, sort of game systems, because yeah. I noticed you've you not got it down as a bullet point, but there were some things I wanted to raise, because um, there's been a lot of criticism, you know, there's just a usual backlash, you know, the game comes out, everyone loves it, and then a week later there's a massive backlash. Of Infinite, yeah. Uh, of, of Bioshock as well, as you, I pointed out my blog post uh, to yeah, Alex. Yeah, 34 people jumping on your case and going, uh, Bioshock tell is it, bollocks. Telling me Bioshock is bollocks and Half-Life 2 is better, basically, in summary. <laughs> <laughs> and that all of my arguments were more relevant for Portal and Half-Life 2, and I'm afraid that's one of the reasons why I can't stand that game. Um, but the, the actual, there are key things in, the, in this game which a lot of people have criticised, which are actually are some of my favourite things in it. The fact that a lot of people don't like the hacking minigame. I the love the hacking. Oh, I, I love the hacking mania. minigame. You I really what? like it because <clears throat> it, it, it is a complete change of pace, and it and it has this 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 tension, this di- different tension to the regular game. You have this I tension of how tense that got of not making a mistake. Of, 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 you know, of, of having a fixed amount of time, you really have to concentrate on something and really think about what you're doing rather than just running around trying to blast things. The hacking game is just the right combination of frustrating, compulsive, and risk reward. So I hated it, but I couldn't stop. And I found out later when I kept photographing the turrets at the very end of the game, oh, just press X to hack. You mean I could have done that at any time? After yeah. I got the camera? What the fuck? You realise so, you could freeze them to slow it down and all that as well, don't you? Freeze them? To yeah, so if you hit the turrets with ice with your... I never used ice because icy. I thought that once people shattered, they didn't leave behind loot. Now uh, I know they drop lockboxes sometimes. If you use the... Well, if it's Winter's Blast, and if you use Winter's Blast on machines, then the hacking is... The, the, the liquid in the hacking is slower. I may have done 675 hacks through my most recent playthrough. Just a ballpark figure. I hacked everything I saw and it drove me crazy and I was I was really quite good at it by the end but I still kept failing at times when, it, when I just like... The worst ones are the ones where you open up, give me one of those sort of ones that goes to the right. A bomb. I can't use that and in fact now you've completely blocked me off and there's no choice and because the fluid is now going to the left there's nothing I can do with it now. Thank you. And then security bots come, and I just tended to, by the end of this game, just put my pad on the sofa, throw my arms out in a cruciform, and say, just kill me, I'll come out of the fighter chamber and do it all again. So, yeah, you did make it hard for yourself. I did make it hard for myself. <laughs> and I That's just, good. I kept doing it, though. I'm, I'm quite... Yeah, I, I, I would be a, a wizard at Pipe Mania now. 
Um, yeah, the other the other one I want to point out I want to make, and it's one that actually Mark made in his piece, is that again, there's a lot of criticism about whether you do actually have agency in this game or not. Yeah. And a lot of people say it's just another, it's just an on-rail shooter that's slightly more open. But that to me is a nonsense because this, I'm not a, as you know, I'm actually sick and tired of first-person shooters. I really struggle to have muster any enthusiasm to play one. Mm. But the thing with the Bioshock games is you can play it in multiple ways. And um, certainly, I know you can just run through with the wrench and the um, Electro Bolt if you wanted to. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way I approached virtually uh, most of the sort of set pieces was just to use traps. And I, I, you know, I got really quite cunning with using plasmid combinations in traps and, and laying traps so that one pushed you into another. And you can do some really cool things with it. And, the, you know, the, the game engine allowed you to do that. Yeah. And there's, there's been pretty s- much no combination or no weapon or no plasmid that no. you're forced to use over and over again. And you've got a variety sick. of different types of ammunition which you can mm. use. And again, you can combo those with plasmids as well. I mean, people much say as the that- hacking drove me crazy. I could just have blown them all to pieces and just, yeah. you know, screw all the security. I'll get yeah. rid of it. There is actually a lot of player agency in it in terms of how you approach the combat situations. And much of the criticism of, you know, oh, it doesn't play like Half-Life 2 is because the game world is designed for you to experiment with different combinations of things. It's not designed for you to just run around with a gravity gun or a, or a, or a pistol. And um, It does sound like we're ripping on Half-Life at this point. No, no, but what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm answering back to those critics of my blog post, actually, rather than anyone's a fan. Forget right? them. They're 34 chuds. But but that's what that's the point I'm making is that if you approach it as a shooter, yeah, you will be disappointed because the physics of that world are not designed just to be a shooter. You can play it as a shooter, but it will be rather unsatisfactory. So, but you can also play it as you know, a, a, almost like a brawler, mm. like a, a, or you can play it, you know, be much more cunning with the way you approach it. And that's been consistent throughout the series. So Infinite was, although I don't think it did it as well. The actual sort of gun combat is probably superior in Infinite, and so it kind of made up for it. But all of them have had have given you this option of approaching each combat situation in whatever unique way you want to, and mm-hmm. given you lots of different options. The gun combat in Infinite was limited by the fact that you had to carry two guns at a time. In this, you can select from any number of them, and the thing that you're limited on is actually the plasmids. So, mm-hmm. but even then, find one of the regularly placed plasmid swap out stations and you have access to your full arsenal whereas Bioshock Infinite you're beholden to what they scatter around the levels in terms of guns and ammo playing this reminds me I miss the days when you could carry as many weapons as you want yeah I know it's I know it's unrealistic I know it's fashionable that you only can carry two or maybe four but just because Halo did it perfectly back in 2002 doesn't mean that we have to maintain that and it was it's hideously limiting in some games particularly Infinite yeah. Sorry, Halo was 2001. And I quite liked all the collecting all the bits and manufacturing your ammo from it. I know they took that mm. out of the other games, but I, I, I really enjoyed all those bits and I was quite surprised when I kind of, if you go back now and read reviews, those are the main criticisms really that the gunplay is unsatisfactory, there's pointless collecting of materials that don't really give you anything. I think with a lot of modern first person shooters, does that instant gratification now with your Call of Duty's point gun, pull trigger, boom, they drop, you know? And it stifles creativity and you have something like Bioshock that almost has too much options and yeah a lot of players are just aren't used to that now that i finished uh, bioshock 2 i can uh, agree that most aficionados of the series would say the combat peaked there the ability to think on your feet and and use combinations of plasmids and weapons on the fly without having to do the whole you miss it until you 
play one and then two in turn, the fact that you don't have both hands in play at the same time makes mm. a big difference with the first Bioshock. And I can't remember Infinite now. Do, do you have both at the same time? Yeah, or do you Infinite, have you yeah, do have both at the same time. Because okay, right, yeah. it, it's so frustrating. That's, the, that's one of the only major frustrations I've had going back to Bioshock, yeah. is firing your plasmid then switching to the way, even yeah. if you just go trigger to trigger, there's still the animation of switching yeah. over to the gun. There's that slight delay in that window which makes it feel less fluid. And that, that costs you. I mean, I'm playing on easy, and the, that still cost me lives. It is easier on PC because you can hot key the plasmids and sure. guns. So. Also, you can mouse, key, uh, you know, mouse point to whoever you're shooting at. It's a bit yeah. more scattershot on the consoles. Yeah. On that note, there's how the Vita chambers affect combat. Now, to get a good read on this, I finished Bioshock One after using Vita chambers the whole way through, and then I turned off the Vita chambers and completed Bioshock Two to get the Big Brass Balls achievement. And it completely affects combat. Negatively and positively. Negatively in that nothing seems of real consequence in the, in the, if you've got the Vita Chambers on. If you die, uh, you have to walk a bit further to get back to the fight. And a lot of the people that you've killed are now dead. So it's more of a slog. And in uh, Infinite, it's even worse because you lose a bit of money. So it feels like you've been mugged rather than killed. <laughs> and... Um, but you get extra ammo back. I don't know if that affects the original Bioshock, but say if you're really low on grenades, I actually at times chose to die rather than carry on with the fight just to get a bit of a salt and ammo boost for 25 measly dollars. It would have cost me a lot more from even a hacked vending machine. However, with the Vita Chamber switched off, I was terrified. I was creeping around going, okay, right, be careful. Use what you've got available to you because money suddenly becomes a really finite resource. Because if you can't finish a fight in one go and you die, you've got to do maybe loads again. And if you haven't saved, you could have a whole chunk of game that you lose. Big daddies are something that you regard with fear and trepidation. You check all your ammo and you work out in your head, I actually can't kill this thing and then you have to scour the levels to find enough ammo and dollars and powers just to be able to take on the daddy to get the little sister to get the atom to get the plasmids to take on the next big daddy the whole thing becomes a knock-on effect as opposed to just move to the next place kill that thing die keep coming back kill that thing die eventually you kill everything you need to and you've died 16 times but it doesn't matter so i, I saved often uh, but I approached every fight as tactically as I possibly could, using my resources as sparingly as I possibly could. And that played totally with the strengths of Bioshock 2, and I heartily recommend using no Vita Chambers. And I'm looking forward to playing Bioshock 1 without Vita Chambers, because it cheapens death. On the other flip side, positively, it allows people like Sharon to just push their way through the game, and if they get killed, no biggie, just keep going, which allows people to experience the narrative, which is key. There is, of course, a real-world reason why I object to Vita Chambers, as much as the crazy technology that we have to take on board to believe that Rapture exists. I could sort of believe 
that there might be a, a chamber where you could clone somebody in and bring back this sort of meat puppet. But I don't think the scientists of Rapture have managed to harness the human soul and the consciousness and what happens to said consciousness when it's ripped out of the body by sudden death from a big daddy stamping on it over and over again. And even if they could, why is Jack always wearing in the same clothes? Do they also have some sort of sweater generator? He should be a naked guy charging about, reeling from being killed and brought back so many goddamn times, which must have an immense psychological toll on you, and also probably covered in slime too. There's something for the box art. Of all video game life systems, trying to work it into some sort of barely believable, please don't question it or it doesn't make any sense, real world reason why you keep coming back? I'm not sure if it's better or worse than Elizabeth constantly injecting you with, I don't know, what is that, adrenaline? To bring your battered, ruined form back over and over again in Bioshock Infinite. Now, I hate, and I've said this before, the enforced ideal of you're playing it the wrong way if you don't play it like this. But I will say, playing a game like this with consequences in mind strengthens the experience. That doggy in the window, the one with the waggly tail. How much is that doggy in the window? I do hope that doggy's for sale. It must have been first time through. I I don't think I paid much attention to them. I probably mm. only I played it on easy. So. I played it on easy, and I didn't care about the combat at all. No, I mean I I was careful anyways. I I've got a feeling I don't think I ever used a, a, a Vita chamber on the on the first time I played it. It's only when I tried to do it on hard that I yeah. had to use them. Um, as for Bioshock Two, the same as you, I've got the brass balls achievement. I think I can't remember. It's a long time ago. Um, for the same reasons, but yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I, the way I approach those games is as, as the combat in that is, a, is as a puzzle. Mm. So you can normally tell when there's going to be a set piece, particularly in the second one, and so yeah. you know it's time to start laying traps and thinking about your environment and making best use of the environment you're in. You're actually thinking about what you're doing for yeah. a change rather than just mm. shooting dudes in the face. Almost no other game does that. I think uh, Dishonored. Actually Dishonored. Yeah, I was, yeah. was going to mention that earlier. Very actually, much modelled on the Bioshock games. Very few games. Games have really taken Bioshock's combat uh, as it's an inspiration. It's been six years now. Um, you didn't imagine. Dishonored did, yeah. I think a few, I think um, Singularity is one mm. that's often called mm. out. It comes yeah. from Dishonored from that same design team of Looking Glass Studios, um, mm. where Levine started his work there, and I can't remember his name, the designer of Dishonored was from Looking Glass as well. You know, yeah, he worked Thief, on Deus Ex and Thief, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. And Thief. System Shock 2 as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is clearly the DNA of System Shock 2 is through both of those these games. Yeah. Well, I, I just ordered Dishonored because I'm hungry for more Bioshock-style gameplay. I've only got Minerva's Den left it's, to play. Yeah, it's very, very close. I mean, the oh, thing well. that lets Dishonored down, to be honest with you, is the narrative, so... Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, now, I didn't put this as a uh, uh, bullet point, but silent protagonists in Bioshock 1, nearly unacceptable. In Bioshock 2, totally acceptable. Big daddies don't talk. Certainly going back after Infinite, where Booker had so much personality, mm. and I really started to like Booker. Like I, I really get on well with a, a 
speaking protagonist in in because I know they're dated, but he's like Han Solo, isn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. he's very Han Solo. Like when you when you go back, like if you look at like Far Cry Three, for example, is the latest first person shooter I've been playing, and the the speaking protagonist in there, I want to hit him. I want to slap him too. I want to I want to slap myself. But there, we are actually playing someone that you kind of not only you want to be, but you want to know. Mm. Um, and here, I I didn't even know, I, I keep forgetting that the, the character in um, Bioshock actually has a name. Yeah. I didn't realise his name is Jack. I, 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 <laughs> I am Jack's total lack of personality. Yeah, yeah. complete lack of, and I know it, it works like for Half-Life, because Half-Life all, you know, Gordon Freeman doesn't say anything. No, it doesn't, not to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm one of those people who uh, no. considers that Gordon Freeman should have had a voice but, and a personality. Okay, no, no, no. Gordon, Gordon Freeman works in the you, the nerd, not you specifically, but you... Everyone uh, else. Everyone oh. else, the nerd that wants to be a cool, geeky scientist who wields a crowbar and a machine gun and kills and saves the day, wants to be that character. Did they want to be that before they played Half-Life? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want to be it afterwards. scientist that kills with a crowbar. Link. Link is a silent protagonist because you put your name to him yep. every single time. Yeah, and it no longer acceptable. But, he, but he's, yeah, he's, he's more of an avatar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I, I think the, to go back to Bioshock, I mean, the whole "would you kindly" thing is actually a little dig at the fact that he's yeah. a silent protagonist. It's the fact, you know, even you get um, Ryan mocks him for that very reason yeah. that he just, he's just doing as he's told. He's not saying anything or doing anything. He's just doing as he's told. He's That's just like my next bullet. Well, yeah. Well, narratively, he is a puppet. He 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 has little to no personality. All he needs is all he has is like enough sufficient fake memories to to sell the illusion I think you know those chains on his wrists bind them both together for his slavery and attached to his puppet strings yes would you kindly as a commentary on the rigmarole of play we are told throughout our gaming lives to go here fetch this kill this thing bring me back this book and then you will get a prize I do kind of question this, having gone back to play it now, because like, I remember playing Bioshock back in 2008, um, like I said, I was a year late to the party, and when they did the Would You Kindly revelation, and it flashes back to all the times you've been said, you, mm. the Atlas has said, Would You Kindly, I, felt, I suddenly think, yeah, I did not pick up on that, I am not responsible for my own actions, and that stunned me, and yeah. that's, the, that's the biggest thing that people take away from Bioshock. However, going back to it this time, I'm up to Arcadia, I'm only an hour or two away from um, the confrontation with Ryan, and I have only been... I've only encountered, I think it's three occasions of Would You Kindly, one of which is the note on the parcel that you have on the plane, one of which is, Would You Kindly Pick Up That Shortwave Radio Over There? Brilliant. And (laughs) one of which... I, I can't remember the third one. Well, yeah, case in point, I can't remember the third one. Four, there's Would You Kindly Pick Up That Wrench... Uh-huh. And, yes. would you kind, and would you kindly put down that wrench as you yes. see the, I, the little that system was as you see the little bit, and lo and behold you do and it doesn't strike you as anything strange because it's just a scripted event and it's nothing new however the whole point is that he said would you kindly go and kill Ryan and yeah. that's why you are compelled to do so but when he initially after the whole fake out of the, the, the bathysphere in which his Atlas's quote unquote family are hidden when that destroys, he goes, all right, we're going to go and kill this person, or I need you to... All the way through... He's no, he says, let's go in there and kill the bastard. Let's go in there and kill the bastard. But he doesn't say, would you kindly, until you get to Hephaestus, is it pronounced? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hephaestus. Hephaestus, Hephaestus, Hephaestus sorry. Um, he doesn't say, would you kindly, until you get there. So you go, you follow this guy blindly, 
and you start completing these objectives and you start going through Arcadia and start doing all this to get to progress the game without him saying would you kindly. Yeah. So I think... uh, A lot of that is connected with the act that he has put on for you. He allows you to want to help out Atlas. But the the crucial would you kindly is, as you say, the point where he has to kill Ryan, something he could at that point choose not to do. Yeah. But my point point is, as much as would you kindly, is the whole point is that we are not in control of our own actions and that that was a great twist. Mm. I think the the vast majority of the game before that kill, outside of the... We were going to do it anyway. Exactly. So uh, another thing Leon said, which I thought was great, was uh, that a brilliant art installation would be Bioshock running 24-7 with Jack standing in the bathosphere waiting. It was going to be called A Man Chooses. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of your key scenes that will stood out for me, um, I did mention it in the video, was the first plasmid that you pick up and use. He doesn't say, would you kindly use that plasmid? Yeah, Um, I thought that. What you do see is a word that says power up. Would you kindly is the same power in Jack as the word power up has on us gamers. Yeah. We blindly follow what's instructed. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, And I think that's also the big message here in the game. Would you kindly is Jack's trigger word for being a slave, but we as gamers are bred, almost not bred, but conditioned knowledge to, want to, to, yeah, to be more to powerful. Yes, exactly. With, Ergo, with, the choice to save the little sisters rather than taking everything from them should, should be more of a tough decision for us. This must have turned up in a meeting. If it was actually a case of you get Adam from killing the little sisters, but if you save them, you either get hardly any Adam or none at all, thus making the game significantly harder, especially on the higher difficulties, and considerably less fun. The combat less varied, less interesting, effectively gimping the game by taking the moral high ground. That would be a genuine choice, though not necessarily one that people would commend the game for. It's almost like they had this choice available to them and they bottled it. They certainly overcompensate for the amount of Adam you eventually get. The wages of sin are pretty much the exact same as the salary of virtue. So you get to be a goody two-shoes and have splendid fun with all the plasmids and magic. Like I said, that's maybe why I I was thinking like a gamer and I harvested that little system. But by the end of the game, I had so much Adam, so many plasmids, I had no room for all the plasmids I needed. We as gamers are not slaves. We are splicers. We are constantly compelled to power ourselves up to gain as much Adam, as much plasmid, as much ammo as possible. We're just scavenging. (laughs) Searching to galvanize our bodies and uh, gain as much... Uh, many new abilities and killing abilities uh, as survival abilities as possible i'm not so sure i think i think it's a a bit of a dig of the fact that as seasoned gamers that you're conditioned to approach each game in virtually the same way and when the game doesn't do what your expectation says it should do you then have a resistant reaction to that what ken levine kind of tries to explore here and i think this is like an underlying theme in all of his games is that, you know, you're given the illusion often of agency, but ultimately, in telling a, a narrative story, that agency is then taken away from you at, at, you know, at key points. And whether it's done through cutscenes or whether it's done through in-game sequences like you have in Bioshock, ultimately, you 
tend to look for the shortest path from A to B. You tend to follow whatever instructions you're given at the start of the game and you follow any conditioning you've had in other games to approach everything in the same way. And I think that was, you know, that was his kind of commentary on that. Um, in that, in that one scene, that one, that one sort of twist within this game. And he does it in System Shock too, but in a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah. After becoming exhausted with murder in games, I now take every opportunity I can in games to spare people's lives. So when I started playing Dishonored, I was trying my absolute best to do it bloodlessly. And it actually frustrated me when I couldn't get away. And I kept reloading over and over again to try to get away without killing anyone. And sometimes... It's very, very difficult, you know, once you've made enough mistakes to get out of a situation bloodlessly. You'll get, you'll get better at Dishonored at that. I mean, I was the same at the beginning. It's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. Um, but after a while, it becomes easier and you become, you unlearn what you've previously always done in games of that type and you start approaching things in a completely different way and then you don't need to keep reloading. Yeah. So, but either way, that's a commentary on at least uh, as an evolving gamer may do more than simply scavenge the landscape looking for stuff to eat and make him more powerful and that, that we have more, uh, we seek emotional engagement in ways that splicers could never comprehend. Because we want to be told a story. We want to live a situation where, by and large, we want to actually enjoy being the character we are. Most people don't want to be a uh, morality and ethics-free, cold-blooded murderer. That's why um, Spec Ops The Line is actually a superb piece of gaming. It really does take this commentary on enforced patterns of murder in shooting games. Uh, we should really do a, a gonzo on this one because it, it's actually really powerful and effective the way that they... Yeah, I do want to play that. Uh, yeah, it was me off is having to plod through the actual... Yeah. regular first person shooting parts of it because it it's third person but you, it's yeah. worth it it's same sort of thing bore me to tears but I know that there is this, this payoff yeah. if you do it's, it's deliberately arduous and yeah. un- unimaginative in terms of its shooting set pieces I think people have compared it to Apocalypse Now in, in mm-hmm. terms of uh, war films it is not in any way encouraging war it is in fact depicting what utter monsters war turns a person into Blue 20th century blue they're getting me down Who's escaped those weary 20th century blues Why, if there's a god in the sky Why shouldn't he grin High above this dreary 20th century din are there subtleties of why Andrew Ryan orders you to kill him? Now, we discussed this the other day. Yeah. The straightforward answer is that he chooses to die at that stage and uses you as a tool. Now, one of Sharon's theories is he's experimenting with you to the point of if you are able to break your programming, if you are able to choose rather than obey, then it's possible he would have purposefully interpreted that as the sign that his perception of human nature is correct. He'll take it as validation. Andrew Ryan can never be wrong in his eyes. So if you kill him, it's because you're a slave. If you choose not to kill him, it's because you're a man. Either way, he wins. 
The irony is, of course, he's condemning himself to death at this stage because deep down, in places he doesn't talk about at parties, he knows he's wrong. He knows this whole endeavour is a total bust. He failed. Yet he himself lacks the strength to accept that failure and live with it. So rather than simply kill you, or have you kill yourself, he forces you to kill him to prove himself right so that he can die with a clear conscience. Therefore, it's very possible if Jack had not killed him, Andrew would have sought vengeance against Fontaine. As far as Ryan's concerned, he is Rapture. So if Ryan's going down, Rapture's going down. And by that same token, if he's going to live, you can be damn sure he's going to take Rapture back. He's a captain who not only goes down with his ship, but scuppers it. Yeah, we we talked earlier about that's how he is, that is his personality. And before he built Rapture, he had this um, wildlife, like, was it a reserve park? And the government wanted to... It was a, uh, uh, yeah, a park. Yeah. It was, back on, on dry land, he had a, an area of woodland that was all to himself. Yeah. And then the government came along and said, uh, actually, we, we want to turn this into national park land. It belongs to God, it belongs to us. And he burned it rather than let anyone else have it. You know, and that seems in keeping with his character. I mean, it's almost like... Well, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm still the master over you. I'm still, you, you are a slave, mm. you know. And if I'm going to die, I'm going to die by my terms. And I'll let you, a simple tool, do it. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. And his disgust for the uh, people that he's manipulated and referring, effectively referring to them all as slaves and thus deserving of death as well. Yeah. Three occasions I've played through this game. I have not wanted to kill Andrew Ryan. I've wanted to actually leave it because I kind of want him to account for his mistakes. And killing him allows him to get away with a clear conscience, which doesn't seem right. Mm. He never breaks down and says, what a fool I've been. Look at this. I rolled this. That's just not within him. Normal functioning humans. He's psychopathic. He thinks like Voldemort. Normal functioning people need will have doubts and, and question their beliefs and convictions mm. he has no doubt about what he does it would be nice to sit down and have a cup of tea with him and <laughs> you know but it has to be the golf club <laughs> <laughs> kind of compare uh, Bioshock with some other pieces of literature you mentioned about Rapture earlier and I was going to mention that there's a lot of Jules Verne in about Rapture as well Yep. Sure. in this scene in particular and in some of the audio diaries you get leading up to it and some that are revealed in Barshot too. You also get the feeling that Ryan is very much the kind of Captain Ahab. You yeah. know, he's this yeah. the, the you know, Rapture itself is is his Moby Dick if you like. The, you know, this is this thing that he's pursued his whole life. His obsession. That, uh, his obsession that's that's almost completely ruined him. It certainly ruined him financially on the surface, but then he was never going back. But it's also ruined him now in that he's apt to betray himself and his philosophies and his principles. Uh, and he's left with just nothing now at this point. I'd also like to talk a little bit about um, composition of the scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's like a maison scene. It's mise en scène, placing on stage. Yeah, yeah, it's actually like composition. And Levine shows his theatre background throughout the whole game by literally putting. The, uh, you know, the point of interest of the player in a spotlight mm. and you, you have the little sister in the footlights theatre at the beginning and getting the shotgun and, and Cohen descending down the stairs and and 
the confrontation with Ryan, it, it starts off very theatre-like. It's all black. A, a light comes on, backlit, and it's like Ryan's addressing the audience. You know, it's a lovely scene. Oh, Danny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling From glen to glen and down the mountainside The summer's gone and all the roses falling It's you, it's you must go and I must bide But come ye back When summer's in the meadow Or when the valley's hushed And white with snow It's I'll be here in sunshine Or in shadow Oh Danny boy, oh Danny boy I love you so So why is the final section weak? Okay, I've thought about this a lot and I'll be interested to hear uh, Mark's views I know he'd sort of... um, made some comments towards the end of his his piece, but when I've thought about it long and hard, there had to be a final showdown with Fontaine. And how you resolve that, you know, you could obviously approach that in many different ways. But I feel that perhaps, you know, they felt that they'd gone far enough to kind of um, prove a point in what they're trying to do with this game, that they needed to finish the game in a very gamey way mm. you know it needed to have a full stop at the end of it and uh, the classic way in video games and this in many ways is a commentary on video games the classic way to finish a video game is to have one big final battle and we see it in lots of other games as well you know all the Dead Space mm-hmm. series and Mass Effect and you know giant robot r- babies and things like that and it sure but it dates back to NES platformers and Capcom arcade. Okay. Goes back to arcades. Arcade. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, it does. Yeah. And I do, I do feel that the criticism of Bioshock for doing that has freed designers up to not do that in the future. So yeah. it's kind of said, well, Bioshock did it and it didn't work, so therefore we should probably not do that now. And you know, talking of Dishonored, Dishonored is one of those that does have the possibility of an ending like that. And actually, it can feel kind of unsatisfying the other way around as well. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I, I don't really see where else they could have gone with it back in 2008. I think now they can be a lot braver, and I've seen, I think we've seen a shining example of that with Infinite. Right. Bioshock 2 did a better ending, and that wasn't a classic boss fight, though, really, no. was it? No, it was a, no, a series of fetch quests yeah. I mean, gauntlet. Of, of the series, Minerva's Den has the best ending, but yeah. um, obviously that's something you'll cover in more depth on a future show, but I think, again, because they the shackles have almost been released, you know, because of the criticism of Bioshock, and people saying it has a terrible ending, it's almost like free reign now for if you're going to make a game like this that you can be more inventive and, and innovative perhaps with the way it finishes it's not just the uh, end boss the 
premise of getting into a big daddy suit was clearly what everyone had been thinking the moment that they first saw them. It was like, wow, I wonder what it would be like to actually be yeah. in one of those suits. So when you start going off to find the bits of a big daddy suit, that's really exciting. And it, it conjured up all kinds of ideas for how it could end narratively. Now that you've done the Andrew Ryan thing, what is left for Jack? Could he end up just this lumbering, sad possibly even lobotomized Big Daddy figure walking the silent, leaking hallways of Rapture looking for a little sister. And what you ended up with, it was big, loud footsteps and a slightly different hat on. You even still have your stupid sweater and shirt sleeves and human hands. <laughs> they couldn't even implement or didn't or didn't have time or didn't bother or did decided against it narratively, giving you the actual arms and hands of a big daddy. Those are the only part of the player you see. If you don't have them, you're not a big daddy. They even got down to the voice to the point where I was like, oh my God, there's a big daddy nearby. <laughs> oh, it's me. <laughs> and it was it was really eerie to, to find myself doing that, even after I played it twice before. It felt like they got almost to that, but didn't quite. So everyone was left with a subconscious disappointment that they weren't quite a full Big Daddy. Also, you've got to bear in mind what you're doing at this point when you're a Big Daddy. They trammel you once again into a long, twisty corridor, only this time it's an escort quest. And a tedious one at that. Yeah. So to that end, Bioshock 2 is this last quarter of the game done right. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason you have the big battle with Fontaine, I think, is so that they had a worthy adversary for Big Daddy. Because mm-hmm. you've just seen him through the entire game that Big Daddies can just crush their opponents. So to go up to Fontaine as a splicer would be kind of weak, you know. Even if he was like an uber Houdini splicer that could do all kinds of stuff, it would still be yeah. rather mm-hmm. pathetic given how you saw the first Big Daddy that you see in the game dispatch an ordinary splicer, which it'd be like, well, this won't be a long battle at all. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose he could just have basically got into an even bigger daddy costume. <laughs> and you're a big daddy. <laughs> I'm the biggest daddy. That's, that's the Iron Man ending, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Oh, God, that would have been good. But don't forget that throughout the game, you have been dispatching Big Daddy, so... Yeah. You know, you are formidable. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's also, here's the thing. It's the hit him four times and he's done thing. It's like you suck a bit of juice out of him. He attacks you with one kind of element. You dispatch him. He goes back to his thing. You suck a bit more juice out. And then as if he hasn't noticed your pattern... He does the same thing again, and you do yeah. it again. It's, it's, it's literally the Zelda spider hit in the arse three times, and it will obligingly show you its glowing arse each time. Template boss battle. Yeah. yeah. And I, like mm. I said, I, I feel like in some ways that was a another little commentary on you know game design, yeah. but in another way they, they didn't have the confidence to do anything else. Yeah. yeah. If they'd done yeah. that and then gone, well, that wasn't actually the real ending, though, um, <laughs> that, that would have made perfect sense. It's, it, it even has... A fairly lovely ending, and I actually really do like the, uh, the, I know it just sort of cuts to a, a scripted sequence and then a, uh, a video, but I really like the contents of that video and it makes it seem like it was worth it. And then it just ends, and there is, there isn't even credits. And this is something that we actually need as game enthusiasts. If we've been playing for 20 hours on a game, and really putting effort into it, we need to absorb that. We need to digest it. We need to sit back with our pads in our laps and go, 
and watch yeah. the credits. And like in Bioshock 2's uh, credit sequence, they show concept art, and you go, wow, look at that. And it allows you to process what you've just done. If it just dumps you to the title screen, and then if you want, if you go through that title screen, you can find the credits option. It just feels like a sort of a, a huge anticlimax. So again, it's like various little things that could actually have been tweaked to actually give a more of a resounding sense of finality to the game. I think the problem is everything post Ryan for me lacked momentum. Yeah. All of the momentum in the game is building up to that confrontation with Ryan. After that, you're almost cruising along. When you're doing the whole Big Daddy thing, I mean, I never bought into the Big Daddy thing. I never looked at them personally and looked and thought, yeah, I'd like to be in a big suit with a big drill. But when you're actually going around and getting the different parts, it just feels like, it feels like very generic fetch quest, like this is what I have to do. And given that we've just seen, and I mean, you go through the whole rigmarole of um, breaking that curse and breaking the would you kindly curse. So, ah, now I'm free to not do what mm. I'm told to do, what I'm conditioned to do. And you end up doing exactly what you have been conditioned to do. Yeah. The whole point of the game is to open your eyes to you are a blind player. Mm. And then you spend the last, and it's a good two or three hours. Yeah. A good two or three hours continuing that. Rather than leaving you question it on a I, fetch it, quest, yeah, it would have been it would have been better. And they've learned this with Infinite. And if you're willing to have me back, we'll talk about this on the Infinite episode. Infinite ends, and everything builds up and builds up, and the revelation comes at the end. Whereas this, the revelation comes at the essentially at the end of Act Two. Yeah, and Act Three is completely redundant. It almost completely redundant in the in wake the, of that. Yeah, in the wake of that, you're still reeling from that. Um, that revelation. Infinite, you're all the way through the credits, the credits you need to recover from the final revelations. Here, there's no real-time recovery. It's just, uh, yeah, that was amazing. We've blown your mind. Now can you get on and just do the gamey thing that you're <laughs> used to doing? It, it would almost have been better if, because everything kind of focuses on Ryan as the ending, if that was the ending. If after you've killed Ryan say you've you've dealt with Fontaine before yeah. or there's a way of like kind of there's a there's a Bond villain style self-destruct button that blows up Rapture and then you get in a bathosphere and float to the surface and it's all over within 10 minutes no you want everything to be like James Bond no sorry no I'm not no, I'm, I'm not. glad they didn't destroy Rapture because that would have been literally yeah. throwing the baby out with well, the yes. bathwater okay, I okay. Think but my yes. point would be like if they'd ended it if they'd, there'd been some sort of closure very soon after. No, I, I do agree with that. If if they could have rejigged it so that you uh, find out that you're a slave before mm. you meet Ryan, but you've already been told to go and kill him, and so you're looking for the cure to, so that you can, you know, basically choose this one for yourself. But then the cure is through and inside Ryan's office, and you think that Ryan's obviously going to help you at this point, but before you can get to it, he demands that you kill him, and this is after you've dealt with Atlas. Yeah, this is us telling Ken Levine how to make games, of course. <laughs> if, if there was some kind of, um, if Frank Fontaine's like, or Atlas, or whoever it is, when you kill him, if his if his last words would had been, "Would you kindly go and kill a, a, a Andrew Ryan?" and then you have no choice, and it emphasises you have no choice, and he still has that power, or if there's some sort of, but then again, the cure is that, just a kryptonite anyway. It's just a narrative construct in a bottle that you like. Why? Mm. Well, I guess now that I've killed him, I can drink that, and everything's fine. I think ultimately as well. Um, Fontaine just is a very uninteresting antagonist, especially yeah. compared to Andrew Ryan. Once yes. once it comes through who he is, he then spends those two hours drooling at you going, you know what I like <laughs> when I kill people. I'm not your mate anymore. You don't need to be talking to me. Are you lonely? 
A serious... Have you got no one else to gloat to? It diminishes him as a villain. If he'd never spoken to you again, and maybe just shouted something through, at you through some glass, you'd have been like, I'm going to find you and kill you, you son of a bitch. But him talking to you still over the radio and gloating about what a sweet beauty of a con this one was. I don't know why he's Irish still. There's nothing to him. If he had felt some remorse for what he had done, just a twinge, if you'd heard him what he was saying maybe there was something that he felt bad about, then you'd have maybe felt bad about sticking a big spike in him. He becomes a cardboard cutout gangster yeah. villain. You could have lifted yeah. him out of any kind of gangster film, just yeah. stuck him in, and, and he's there. There's no kind of depth to that character, which, given that the man pulled off a an, an fantastic deception, is it weakens the whole... It weakens the character. It's almost not true to the character. Yeah. If you can hold on that whole other identity, not just to you throughout the game, but for the two years that um, everyone believed Fantaine was dead, mm. there was no way he would just lapse back into this very kind of cardboard cut-out personality. Mm. Which is a good job they, we had the book, because the book gives him backstory. It does. He is still a scumbag, but you can see his manipulations at work in that, and mm. it just seems like he's clinically sociopathic in that. Yeah, and well, he's not even Fontaine, is he? No, he's Frank Gorland. And that, that might still not even be his name. But, no, uh, probably okay. isn't. Mark, you were going to say something? Yeah, yeah, it's a shame that uh, it falls flat on its face post-Ryan's death, because mm. some of the levels are the, my favourite in the game after that. Yeah, the slums, you know, yeah. Yeah, you've seen the effects of the, the Civil War there, and the, the, the orphanage the facility is just horrifying, mm. you know, with the Skinner box experiments and stuff. You know? And seeing the houses of the people that you know as well. Mm. For some reason, seeing Tenenbaum's house and having been uh, having it, it raided and torn to shreds yeah. made me feel sad. And Sandra Cohen's house as well. That's so lovely because you yeah. have that couple, that, if you don't kill him in Fort Frolic, he's, he's in his apartment and you have that couple dancing. It's just a lovely little scene that you can't interrupt and they'll go mad and kill you. But <laughs> Let's talk about some of the characters actually because this is a good point for it. Now I've only got four written down here because a lot of them are quite one dimensional or two dimensional at best. Uh, there, were, there were some, they give you interesting insights to their motivation, especially if you've read the book. Dr. Steinman, for example, has drug-induced visions of Aphrodite telling him to look for the inner beauty within beautiful faces and to do as Picasso did with his brush with a scalpel. And I found out also after reading it that I, for some reason, assumed that every single splicer I met had gone to see Dr. Steinman. But there's thousands of them, and that's not the case. The horrible growths all over their faces and bodies are caused simply by Adam abuse. Yeah. But uh, the ones I've got written down are Bill McDonough, who I really liked, and I'm glad that the book focuses on him quite a lot because he's one of the few straight-up people in Rapture. I begged Mr. Ryan to hand Fontaine's futuristics over to Atlas's boys as a peace offering, but the stupid sod won't listen to reason. Instead, he's just splicing his mob up, giving them more and tougher plasmids. There's an arms race on here in Rapture, but it's not about who can build the best guns and the biggest bombs. It's about who can become less of a man and more of a monster. Tenenbaum obviously is not innocent at all and there's a lot of shades of grey about her but uh, McDonough had principles. He's only really a tertiary character if you read through them. He's, he's, he's in is, is it Fontaine Fisheries that you find his diary? I can't remember now. Um, yeah, yeah. In, in near Fontaine Fisheries, there's um, yeah. the Fighting McDonough Tavern. That's it. That's that's it. Yeah. That was his business, I, wasn't it? Yeah. I completely forgot 
Bill McDonough um, from the first time round. Like the, the, it, it's only this playthrough that I've remembered him because you find a number of own um, things. He, he runs the tavern, but I think he's also resp- responsible for the maintenance of ra- Rapture because mo- a lot of his um, audio diaries have gone about how you stop Rapture from sinking. Mm. And he is this straight-laced bloke, and you can tell that he wants Rapture to work, not for the self-game that Andrew Ryan does and that Andrew Ryan designed it for, but to prove that it can and to see if it can give us a better type of humanity. Mm. He has Um, a lot of respect and almost affection for Ryan up mm. until the point where Ryan starts to break his own principles. But I mean, again, that's more in the book than it is in the game. But He's there symbolically as Ryan's conscience. Yeah, he's the Greek chorus. He's, you know, the mythical figure of uh, Cassandra... That the, she she would prophesize and nobody would listen to her. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. basically what Madonna is. He he warns Ryan about everything and completely ignored. Mm. Yeah. The, the whole point of Rapture was you indulge in your own goals, etc. Bill McDonough's the one person who his goal is to keep Rapture running. If there were more people like him, Rapture would have worked. Next, similarly, your shoulder angel, Bridget Tenenbaum, who, if you read up on her, she's got this horrible past and, and an ability to switch off up to just before you meet her that part of your brain that says, this is wrong, I shouldn't be doing this especially to to inflict harm on another person she had an ability in the concentration camps that she was interned she actively aided in the medical experiments she could just have walked away from it and kept nothing to do with it but she wanted to see what they were doing done right almost out of curiosity almost like a defense mechanism to avert her mind from the horrors around her well don't forget in those uh, death camps if you made yourself useful you survived and so Mm. Um, that wasn't uncommon. I've uh, visited a couple of them, and it's it's quite horrific. Mm. You know, when you read the stories of people who what they had to do to survive in those places, yeah. and um, you know, there's a lot of uh, survivor guilt. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Which she carries, but obviously, do- it doesn't manifest itself until it's it's almost like motivated by the little sisters. It's yeah. in there but she doesn't recognise it as being that. They were a cause of what appears to be a breakdown she was having when she was staring at one of the little sisters and feeling hatred when she realised it was actually for herself and for the things that she had done. So this is something that she's been repressing for years. Been there all this time and she just didn't know it. What makes something like me? I look at genes all day long and never do I see the blueprints of sin. I could blame the Germans, but in truth, I did not find tormentors in the prison camp, but kindred spirits. These children I brutalized have awoken something inside that for most is beautiful and natural, but in me is an abomination, my maternal instinct. And of course, the camp was just the start of it. The the brutality and the horror that she would have performed on these children throughout her time in Rapture yeah. was equally as monstrous. It, it, that makes them the worst of the uh, situations she was involved in. But there were plenty of other people in Rapture who were just trying to get by and were poverty-stricken who ended up the subject of various plasmid experiments with her and Sushong. Who Sushong, again, is ridiculously cartoonishly, psychotically... Uh, detached humanity, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Total sociopath with no feelings. His death was actually oddly satisfying when you hear it on the uh, audio diary, and especially is that audio diary fished out of the room where the guy is impaled on the table with a, a Big Daddy's drill? Yes, yeah, so that's him. Yes, yeah, so that's him. Yeah. yeah. Clinical trial protector system, plasmidilot 255, Dr. Su Chong, client Ryan Industries. Very frustrating day. I can't seem to get the damn big daddies to imprint on the little brats. The protection bond is just not forming. Papa Su Chong, get, 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 get away. Uh, uh, maybe if I modify the genetic sequence. Shush, killer. Sequence to allow for get away, you filthy little shit! What? What are you doing? Get me back! Get back! Uh, it's a, there's a, it's a feeling very similar to downfall sometimes when you're listening to the audio diaries and, and watching the uh, film. Which is a film that's become famous on YouTube because of that Hitler going mental scene. It's actually brilliant to watch. These are people uh, at the absolute end of their tethers and the opposing forces are closing in and what hope there is trickles away before your eyes and you feel terrible except for the fact that they're all Nazis and it's fine and you're actually feeling this weird kind of... I wish there was a German word to express... The happiness at the misfortune of others. Anyway, I'll think of it. Um, <laughs> thank you, community. Especially about Hitler, because you're like, yeah, every second of this you deserve. Only really turns up a couple of times in Rapture that you, you meet someone who's so utterly... I don't like to use the word evil, because especially in this kind of game, it's all shades of grey. But selfish to the point where other people don't matter to them at all. And there is an odd twinge of darkly humorous pleasure at their misfortune if you read into his backstory um, you find out that he was bullied as a child and he actually ends up hating children so strong yeah 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 yeah. and one of the horrors is i feel that you can't help thinking that he expresses joy in his work because of the pain that he's inflicting on children which is abominable really yeah Speaking of uh, uh, black humour, if you haven't yet played Bioshock 2, folks, when you get to the first Andrew Ryan automaton, look around for a golf club in the room, use telekinesis to launch it at his head to get the irony achievement. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about that. Walk straight past it like a plonker. You get that as well if you photograph... Um Sander Cohen's Which dead Which leads me on to Sander Cohen. <laughs> uh, again, a fascinating character. I actually find him really dislikable and pompous, uh, but he is nonetheless interesting in, in terms of an artist who's actually really not very good at what he does, yet under the sway of his own dreams of brilliance. When you meet him in the book, you're looking at him from Bill McDonough's point of view and you're supposed to see him for the ponce that he is. Uh, and he immediately lapses into this story about how he met Noel Coward and well the end of the story was Noel Coward they're a huge fan of Sander Cohen he's quite a comical character isn't he in the yeah. book he's almost like the um, in the producers he's almost like the, the chap who wrote the, the play you know, yeah. Springtime yeah. for Hitler he's portrayed in that kind of way and everyone's laughing at him and all these shows he puts on are absolute stinkers, but the only person who actually likes what he does is, is Ryan. Yeah, for some reason, Ryan seems to be a big fan of his. Now, one of the audio diaries in Bioshock 2 states that Andrew Ryan 
only likes art that shows the world as it should be. Ergo, propaganda. Yeah, and that's mm. a very um, objectivism theory as well, isn't yeah. it? Uh, the concept of uh, art has to be can't be subjective. It just has to it has to be something that you can recognise. So again, one of those wonderful contradictions of objectivism: an artist must be free to practice as long as he conforms to these very rigid principles. Yeah. I'm actually going to leave Sander Cohen's homosexuality to be discussed by Chris Eason, who specifically wanted to single him out because there aren't that many homosexual characters. That aspect of it, I think Chris definitely wants to talk about. Now, I don't think it's actually that um, that flattering a portrayal. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he actually coerces you into murdering all four of his ex-lovers, which is pretty horrific and homicidal. And there's almost nothing positive about this man when you finally he reveals himself after his masterpiece is completed he comes down the stairs the spotlight's on him confetti's coming down and this is what he's always wanted to be the center stage the center of attention it's all about him and everyone's adoring him if you're a real artist a true artist it's not about you it's about the work Your work should speak for itself. If your people that follow you know your work, they should feel your fingerprints on your work. But it's not about you, the person. And this is a fundamental aspect of art that Sander Cohen missed. And the sad thing is, it's actually you that did all the work in his quartet, not not Cohen. He just tells you the addresses and he is nothing more than uh, someone hiring an assassin. And requiring evidence. He's a lazy fake. And yeah. I think that's the, you know, what he's portrayed at in, in both the, the game and the book, you know, and that's why he's laughed at. Yeah. Because he, he is a fraud. <laughs> but he's, he's a fraud with conviction. And that's what Ryan, I think, likes, likes in him. The fact that, you know, mm. he is striving to better himself through, through his art and not bettering the, the medium in which he's working. Part of the great chain of art as opposed to Andrew Ryan's great chain of industry, is inspiring others to do better than you. If you can instill in someone the fire to create, then you've done your job. But that doesn't play with objectivism, because then you're doing something for somebody else. You can't possibly benefit from someone else's art under objectivism, especially if they're better than you, because their art will sell more. If art is all about competition, then it's redundant. The part is over now, the dawn is drawing very nigh. Let's creep away from the day, and allow me to say goodbye. I I just wanted to say is mention the, the the point I raised five years ago now. <laughs> I just want to say I was right. Oh no no I'm not gonna say I was right. I think I was wrong on some counts definitely. But the key message that the key point I was making back then is that when we look back at this generation, one of the first games that will be mentioned will be Bioshock. Although there are a bit, there have been sort of genre-defining games of, of this generation, as as covered in uh, the the other podcasts we did, I do think you know when you look back at certain periods of time through video games, there's certain titles that just leap out and just instantly tell you about what was going on at that point in time. So like like Half Life, like 
uh, Mario 64, like um, the original Tomb Raider. Um, these are like key milestones throughout video game history and I've always felt I felt when it came out and I still feel it now that Bioshock is a real key milestone for mm. for this generation in both in terms of narrative construct and in terms of player agency uh, and commentary on player agency and in particular in actually making a game that is adult in, in content but isn't condescending or patronising and a lot of the fact that we've been able to discuss many of these things in this show is because a lot of stuff is purposely left unanswered. You know, you, you're, the motivation for Ryan almost killing himself is left open. You can interpret it in a number of different ways. And the same is true for many different things that you see throughout Rapture, even through to the, the philosophies on which it's based. You know, you're, you're left to question at times whether... Um, you know, everything about objectivism is wrong and evil, or whether is it just the case of the fact that it's taken to an ex- such an extreme mm. that that's what makes it bad. And it's left for you, the player, to decide that. There's no sort of um, hand-wringing or lecturing or anything like that. It's left entirely open to interpretation. I think it's a searing indictment that we haven't seen a first-person shooter game with so much depth in Bioshock Apart from the other Bioshock games, I can't think of another game that has that much backstory and, and, and narrative and, and, and open-ended gameplay. I mean, can you, can you guys? Because I'm, I'm at no, a loss. I, I, that, that, that's the thing that I've taken away from this playthrough of Bioshock is how little we have learned or at least how little we've we've experimented um as an industry in terms of like you know and i say we i mean the games industry developers and so forth five years ago we had this title that created a completely different setting a completely even without the philosophy and the narrative behind it it was just a stunning original setting that wasn't a middle eastern battlefield the combat wasn't just run and gun and cover shooters there was a lot of strategy and depth to it and then there is the narrative implications and you know like the, the creating a world for people to explore the you know creating audio diaries that give people a little bit more insight into that world showing not telling or hinting not telling in in the piece i wrote about um bioshock infinite it's inferring implying rather yeah, than telling it's not telling it's left no. for you to decide a lot of the yeah. time it's left for you to to form your own opinion although you know you are definitely steered a lot of the the big questions are left unanswered mm. and for you to to make your own judgment call on which um, is incredibly rare and we don't need every game to be a bioshock we don't need every game to have us questioning how and why we play video games how and why the world exists how and why mankind is the way it is but we need more to try this came out in august 2007 and might have been the most influential first person shooter of this generation but then three months later yeah, Call course. of Duty, Modern, Modern Warfare, Warfare. and then even just down to the multiplayer and how that has the, the ripples in the mill pond. That is an enormous rock chucked into a mill pond. Those ripples radiated out to everything, including Bioshock Two. The multiplayer in that, the, the progressive character development, is is actually yeah. really quite good, and it's based on importing the ideas from Bioshock 1 into the multiplayer, which was done in Modern Warfare. Uh, I'm not saying if Modern Warfare hadn't come out, the world would have been better. But it would probably have been different, because I think Bioshock itself might have had more influence. The the, the problem is that 
that sales speak more to the business people running this industry than mm. critical discussion. You know, it doesn't matter how much people get, you know, more people talk about Bioshock. The fact that we are dedicating this, con- this, this entire podcast in the next few to the Bioshock series and very, very few are talking about any Call of Duty, let alone Modern Warfare, COD 4 Modern Warfare. I pity the person but- who is doing episode by episode shows <laughs> on all the Call of Duty games. But that's the thing, like, you know, business people don't care about what gets people talking. It is about what sells. And that's true across all mediums. Hmm. The- I think we're very lucky to still have a publisher like 2K around because yeah. mm. uh, they mm. have been superb at uh, Ubisoft to a certain extent as well at doing that juggling act in both concentrating on their big financial returns. You know, with 2K, it's it's GTA and I'm trying to think what that one's called. It's GTA. <laughs> there probably is. You know, they. Pro- I mean, they have, they make decent returns on their other stuff, but that's their big breadwinner. But they have been willing to back these other projects which are you know at the time and this would have been a high risk project you know and i mean before it came out not many people there wasn't much buzz about bioshock yeah. and it came out at a funny time of the year and then that demo came out of the opening sequence and people were just blown away it's like where did this come from that's one of those rare occasions where a demo completely nothing changes the perception yeah. of the game and uh, same I think with um borderlands and XCOM, you know games yeah. that not many people were interested in they came out people played them they were incredible it was a risk and it paid off for 2k and it, and that's that's their strength i remember the the trailer though was incredible i, I remember thinking what is that because it doesn't seem like it should be as as violent and grisly as it is because of the fantastical setting and yet it's absolutely uh, it's visceral I don't know what the um, James Bruno is better than me, but I don't know what the kind of structure of 2K is like in terms of its ownership. Mm. But it's—I mean, if you're an EA or an Activision and you've got shareholders, then it's a much bigger ask for them to invest in this kind of title. They've tried, bless them, and they've—they've they've done well. You know, I—I I would hold Dead Space 2 up in a similar vein. In fact, it's heavily inspired by Bioshock. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. Do you mean Activision. Dead Space as well, or Dead Space 2 specifically? Dead Space 2 specifically, but Dead Space 1 and 2 together, you know, they've been, you know, and, and, and Mirror's Edge and things like that, you know, you have tried to, to take this route, this kind of experimental yeah. route of producing something. But it doesn't pay is, off anything like the Activision route. Well, because ultimately they're driven by the numbers, and so yeah. the numbers don't come back, and so they get frightened off of doing it again. And when they, when the Call of Duty 4, I mean, you know, you, you could say it was defined the generation. I think it defined that genre. But to me, it just casts a massive shadow. And anything that kind of steps out from behind that shadow is always in danger of getting eaten up because they look at the sales of Call of the Call of Duty series and say, well, if you can't do that, then there's no point in us making you. Yeah. And it, we're lucky. Like I, said, I, I would include Ubisoft in that as well. I think Ubisoft also are quite clever at balancing the two. You know, They'll make very commercially successful things, but they'll also take a punt on things which uh, are, are, are more risky. Um, and we just got to hope these guys carry on doing this, you know. Of all the boys I've known, and I've known some. Until I first met you, I was lonesome. And when you came inside, dear, my heart grew light, and this old world seemed new to me. You're really swell, I have to admit you. Deserve expressions that really fit you. And so I've racked my brain hoping to explain all the things that you did to me. Call me Mr. Shane. Please let me explain. Call me Mr. Shane means you're grand. Call me Mr. Shane again. 
A final word on Little Sisters. I love how they were originally just slugs. I love yes. I, That's a brilliant concept that they, they were actually thought, people are going to be debating, do I set this slug free to go back about his sluggy business? Or do I eat this slug and get super powerful? Hmm. And then the, the various ideas of possible, like a little hunchback creature or a dog pulling itself around a little <laughs> cart gathering Adam until they eventually came to the thing that you really shouldn't ever want to kill but then they twisted it just enough so that there'd be that slight moral ambiguity of well hang on a second it's a girl but she looks like she's suffering and demonically possessed and this might be a kindness and various other ways you can convince yourself but by the end of the game you've gone into rapture you've seen the tragedy that's taken place and although some horrible people have died and a lot of very horrible people are left you do know that there are a lot of innocent people who are caught in the crossfire and preyed upon as a result and have died tragically in their droves so Bioshock is actually, if you look at it from straightforward in terms of what you achieve, if you go for saving the Little Sisters, you go into Rapture and extract everything that is innocent about it and take it back to the surface so that it can live. You take the Little Sisters away from all that. You, Tenenbaum gets out uh, and, and manages to salvage herself a life, although she does return briefly in Bioshock 2 to help out that protagonist. There's nothing left in Rapture when you leave of any genuine virtue that desperately needs to be saved. So there is a satisfaction in leaving and getting that good ending there. That would have been a great way for the good ending to end, just the empty, ruined hallways of Rapture, mm. uh, you know, completely devoid of anything worth saving. Or you could still have some splices prowling around, and maybe a few big daddies still sort of just... Uh, I don't know whether the numbers wouldn't work up, and if you took those the little sisters away, then all the big daddies are dead. I think they would just be patrolling rapture, yeah, thumping just, at their holes. You yeah, know, they, they, you know. that would have been a, a, quite a lovely sort of final moment. And there is still more than enough possibility across an infinite timeline for rapture to be returned to at some stage. And I would like to to see what happens to Rapture in the 80s, say. Say it's discovered by an American Special Forces team and they go in there and what's happened to it. (laughs) You know, just an explorer goes down there. I I want to see Rapture revisited. And I think a lot of people would be intrigued by that. However, opinion was not necessarily entirely unified regarding its sequel. Yeah. And we're going to take our leave of Rapture for a time, but we will be back. At which point the ragtag mob of splices left alive after Jack's roaring rampage will have unified under a new leader. The sea will have begun to reclaim entire sections of the city, and a renewed focus on little sisters and their big daddies will give many players what they wanted throughout their first adventure. See you for the continuing story of Bioshock in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tale. Thank you very much to Gary Blower and James Batchelor of Gameburst. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. And thank you very much, Mark Ord of Gonzo Planet. Thank you for popping my podcast cherry. <laughs> You're very welcome. And to play us out, here is one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. A man who was paralyzed in his ring finger and little finger of his left hand and played his guitar with just his index and middle fingers. Mr. Django Reinhardt. He was an absolute musical genius, and this is Le Maire. <laughs>